This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam. And I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. But he has, but he has so much to gain and has such an material Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 124. I am your co-host, Dimitri. Khaled. And today, we're going to crack open a pretty fascinating topic. And since this is July, I think I said it before, this is going to be a month of serious science yeah. on Subliminal Jihad. So naturally, we had to get like an actual scientist uh, to come in here and, and help us sort through um, a very thorny phenomenon that's getting a lot of press attention right now that has to do with uh what we've termed before sus ai right (laughs) so uh there have been some pretty big stories in the last month about google's lambda ai but i think when it first dropped we noticed that there was somebody in the discord grotto of truth an acolyte that started dropping some very interesting information and background on the whole phenomenon of like ai and language models and all this stuff so we've got him here today. We have, I don't know if I would call him doctor, but serious scientist, Pale Rider. Pale Rider, are you there? Hello, SJ friends. I am, in fact, not a doctor, but okay. I am a machine learning engineer, and I work on all sorts of uh, machine learning related systems up in the Silicon Valley type of area. Word. Very cool. Yeah, it all seems right. like you know a lot about or like have worked in very similar sort of situations to uh, the kind of milieu surrounding the the Lambda thing, like with language modeling and that type of stuff, like uh, the same sort of uh, systems where they kind of simulate human conversation or uh, try to interpret language in a, an advanced way like uh or the gp uh, sorry gtp3 is that what it's called uh gpt gpt3 yeah. yeah which is very mm-hmm. interesting like it can create or uh putatively i don't really yeah i don't really know how i, I would assess but like you know uh prose with the same fluency as like a human writer that's original you know and not just like a hodgepodge of things um, yeah, I've yeah. seen it. I've seen people post on Twitter, like getting it to machine generate like Seinfeld episodes with certain prompts involved and things like, yeah, 
things like that. I mean, I you could see like Hollywood executives just salivating over this. Uh, yeah, like, absolutely. Oh my God. They've wanted that for years. Like it's their yeah. it's their grawl, basically, to yeah. have like just an AI write like Marvel scripts. That, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think uh yet they're this is really hitting ahead right now, especially with uh Blake Lemoyne, the Google engineer that blew the whistle about a month ago. <laughs> And claimed that, you know, the Lambda AI that he had been communicating with as part of his work had achieved sentience and furthermore, in his view, had a soul and was a person and thus should be really afforded the rights of personhood. He's already there. Like, we've created a conscious uh, soul-having entity and, like, we need to respect. He kind of views it as his child, I guess, and... There's been a or lot at least of a child, a child yeah, or like one that he his. contributed maybe to raising. Uh, but yeah, in the Grotto Discord, you came out very hard against like, you know, I think most sensible people were not fully persuaded of its sentience, but you seemed very confident that uh, this is not what was going on and uh, that this guy had, for whatever reason, had like, you know, kind of uh, concocted this or tricked himself into believing this. Yeah, I'm personally fully against the idea that uh, language models in general are sentient. And I'm also against the um, line of thinking that scaling language models to become larger and larger is in some way a path towards um, building sentient machines. I think that they're, they're fundamentally statistical machines that can encode a lot of information and learn complicated relationships when given a lot of data. But that's kind of the, the limit of what they're able to uh, accomplish. Mm, that's an interesting yeah. way of putting it because I think I was watching a different engineer yesterday say, and maybe it was on like, it was a Google guy who had worked on Lambda on like uh, MIB, like Lex Friedman's podcast. And uh, he was basically saying like, well, if you scale these things up, like, yes, they are just basically like scanning information and like processing it and stuff. But like, if you scale it up far enough, that is qualitative. And so he was saying like, even though, yes, it is still kind of this, like model algorithm thing that if well eventually it will become so sophisticated or i think somebody else said you know it will be indistinguishable but then so what's the practical difference then it'll effectively well, be like yeah human, this is but like, this is where i think it becomes mm. interesting and it's kind of tied to the whole like you sent us interesting paper from i'm trying to remember where it was i think it was the one from from arvix on, was it on the dangers of stochastic parrots no Can that we, was okay. uh yeah, that was the uh, the woman who got like fired from Google. That's an interesting story that I think we should definitely discuss. Timnit Gebru and her yeah. like episode because that kind of uh, leads into this in, in certain ways. But this one was by uh, Francois Chalette, like on the measure of intelligence, and it was just kind of talking about how all these discussions around AI intelligence are tied to our model of what intelligence even is, which like, as we've talked about on the show before, can be like very nebulous. Like it's really goes hand in hand with the whole notion of like human beings as being like a sophisticated computer or, you know, a sloppy uh, disk. A exactly. That's how they'll usually turn this around where like, all oh, these machines aren't sentient. They're just like, you know, sophisticated programs that read like a huge amount of data and then like predict responses and they'll be like, well, what is a human if not a sophisticated machine that like, it's like, okay, well, yeah. And then it's like, it's just sensory information. It's like very like, okay, you know, it's kind of exploiting the fact that I think that especially in the present day, 
it's become kind of we've we've like our relationship with other humans has become so attenuated that like our appreciation for other people's humanity has i think like diminished in a way or even like our sciences of the human or like way of conceptualizing what it means to be a human being like our our quote unquote anthropology for lack of a better word have like been so pushed out of the dominant sphere of discourse and marginalized that like you know it's come to a point where it's like oh you know like this Lambda is a person because like it behaves in a certain way. And like, yeah. I think that's like, I'm not trying to be, you know, to say it's not like a sophisticated argument in some ways. Like, I think that it's like pretty effective and like, you know, the environment is very rich for it in a way because, you know, we've all, I feel like most people have had, whether you, although we generally do try to avoid these type of interactions, like everyone probably has had like a, a conversation with someone like on the internet where you can't see their face. You can't like, you know, recognize them in a human, as a human being based on anything else. You know, you're just interacting through text and like the way they're behaving seems like someone that comes to mind is like, I talked to one woman who like, she lived on an island where there were no Muslims and she had never met one, but she was like, they're the biggest threats to the world. Like, you know, they're taking over. Like, I hate them. Or like, whatever. Like, that's like some weird kind of like, almost short circuit that like you know you would expect yeah. from like this well, kind of like machine thinking but actually yeah. no and even you are that, a robot because people <sighs> there are robots just roaming around the internet like you that just brings saying, a lot of, that brings a lot up but okay so i i think an even more explicit example of that from my own personal experience on twitter that i think really illustrates that is i mean you guys have probably seen on twitter before the blue wave accounts right like I've these seen, are yeah. like they're always like it's like grandma nan seven nine four five four five four five nine seven five 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 who like has like fifty thousand followers for some reason and also follows like a hundred thousand people <laughs> and is always doing like hashtag like team up with the blue wave and they post like kind of the most like obnoxious like lib russiagate dumb like trump memes of like like kind of like a dewittowist president kind of tier like even mm -hmm. worse than brooklyn dad defiant and i've always wondered with those like i've even made like a list on twitter that i like add them to as i see them pop up in my feed and they've been around for a while but to this day it's like i can't determine whether they are bots or they are actual just like boomers who for some reason are like addicted to twitter and are behaving like bots and it's almost like i can't I can't definitively resolve the Turing test with like this entire genre of person on Twitter because their behavior is like they're like a hive mind. I mean, even hey, the K hive, remember them? I think a lot of them were both like there was a crossover between those two groups and a lot of K hive people like became just blue waivers at some point. And they're also the ones with like five like vaccine emojis like in their fucking bio and like, and you I, know, I like, remember like, actually like kind of the opposite phenomenon where like for whatever, like someone created this kind of like bot detector where it would like at like analyzing account, like determine like 50% bot or whatever. And people would like post that all the time. Like once it seemed like a bunch of boomers like learning about the concept of bots, but I don't doubt that there's like, you know, astroturf like bot campaigns like on all sides of the political spectrum. Would you say like do you think that that's realistic? Uh, Pale Rider is something that is going on because it definitely seems to be the case that like just roaming all social media, they're like automated things that are not explicit about being automated. Yeah, well, one thing that that we've kind of touched on here is like the difficulty of defining what we mean even by intelligence or by appearing human or something like that. The bar is different in different scenarios where on Twitter you might interact with someone for a few posts and appearing mm -hmm. human over that sort of short interaction sample is much, much easier than over, say, you know, an entire relationship with another person or something mm -hmm. like that. With respect to bots, a lot of times what happens actually is you have um, 
one group of entities that manufacture bot accounts and have them just kind of boost random noise across the platform or possibly within a certain niche. And then they will sell access to the bots for whoever wants to use the bot network to kind of promote a certain idea. Uh, so what could be happening is there's um, a baseline level of bot activity, but every you know couple of days or whatever, a real person will drop in a series of whatever they want the bots to say and amplify. So there's this kind of like, it's not entirely an automated bot, but it's like a, a vehicle that different people can get into and do what they need to with it. I remember reading years ago, kind of around the Snowden era, when a lot of things were coming out about all of those programs and stuff that, and and I think even just there was like an article about like, oh, did you know the CIA has like an army of 50,000 posters that just like, you know, post <laughs> all the time? And it's like, what the 50,000? Damn. But I remember specifically somebody reporting about how the Air Force had contracted a specific type of like sock puppet software, where basically like one person in like an Air Force base on a computer could control up to like 20 different accounts. And it had a certain, like the software was structured in a way that you could kind of puppeteer these kind of bots and like plug in what you sort of wanted them to say. And then they would do a lot of stuff, kind of the the retweeting and the cross boosting and stuff on their own, but still have some human input. Is that sort of maybe what you're, you know, kind of, is that an example of what you're talking about? Yeah, definitely. That. Uh, the, the service you're describing, there's tons of people that offer that. Although the kind of extra level you have to think about is whenever it comes to like technology and DOD contracting, th there's a long history of selling the government software that just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And with AI in general, it's um, one of the, the common mistakes people make is they enter into it with the assumption that it works the way they're being told it works, where oftentimes it's actually just completely broken. And mm -hmm. um, there's just layers of marketing over that or... It's broken, but it's broken in a way that lets you do the thing you actually wanted to do anyway, so you don't care. Um, you see that a lot in services sold to like police departments and whatnot, anything that looks yeah. up like CCTV uh, footage, like trying to match faces or whatnot. A lot of times those don't work, but they, they give you an algorithmic cover to do whatever it is you wanted to do anyway. So that yeah. makes it, it's worth paying for a, a computer that tells you you can do whatever you want. That is, um, you know, I watched, I don't know if you guys got to see it. I put it in the workflowy, but there's a really interesting German documentary called Pre-Crime from 2017. Mm -hmm. And I read a few articles because people have been writing about this recently, but it was really about, it was primarily about the Predpol AI, a predictive policing program that was rolled out in Chicago, kind of ironic, given what just happened there like a week ago. But it, it kind of went through. I mean, it profiled a few people. And also the similar technology was being used in London and in other European cities. And also Palantir isn't on this game. They ran a pilot program that was weirdly like brokered by um, James Carville for, in New Orleans in the early 2010s. Mm -hmm. And they were all doing this. In Palantir's case, it would, they were basically using tech that they had pioneered in Afghanistan and Iraq to track insurgents. So there we go again, you know, internet as counterinsurgency infrastructure. But yeah, they, they basically went and talked about like they they went at, they showed how certain people got flagged as being uh, proximal to violence, either as the victim or the perpetrator and how it like fucked up people's lives in a lot of ways. Like this one guy in Tottenham just got this weird letter from the British police that were like, we know you're a gang member, like change <laughs> your lifestyle, like blah, blah, blah. And basically telling them they are being tracked because they've been flagged as like a potential crimi violent criminal. And like even I think the 
I forget the guy's name, but he was in Chicago who um, had got kind of harassed and put on this heat list is what they call it for about two years. He, he mentioned something kind of ominous, which was like, you know, the police just want this software, like you said, as a cover to do what they want to do anyways. And if they put a flag on you and they let you know that you are likely to become a violent criminal, you're likely to do a shooting or something like that. There's almost an aspect of like willing it into existence so that it can like prove that the algorithm is kind of working and, and shit like that. And that like, like basically yeah, the question that, of like, are they inducing the outcome they're actually predicting? Exactly. And this, this is um, a known thing that plays out a lot of times when machine learning systems are live um, maybe in a minute we can talk about like exactly how these work in a more fundamental way. But when you have a, a system you create, you have some background data set that you use to create your initial model, and then you put it out into the wild and it starts making predictions. And then you collect the results of those predictions as they play out in real life, and you use that to continue training the model. So what tends to happen is the model will fall into its own self-perpetuating feedback loops where let's say you're doing um, a predictive policing algorithm that decides where to distribute um, police uh, resources. Probably in your historic data, there's neighborhoods that have a higher historic probability of needing police attention. So your algorithm is a simple thing, and it just says go to where you historically have a high uh, probability of crime. So you send a bunch of cops there, and because there's a bunch of cops that are looking around, you end up finding crime, which is probably something that would happen anywhere you sent them to. But yep. then you feed that back to the model, and it reinforces the idea that there is, in fact, more crime in this area. So on the next round, you send even more police there to look for even more crime, and you fall into this kind of spiral. And one of the, um, the big things about managing machine learning systems in production is trying to figure out when they're going to fall into these sorts of spirals and, um, you know, adjusting to, uh, around that. A more innocuous example where the same thing happened, I think this was Meetup, um, something where they were recommending um, events to people. So the machine learning angle of this is like you try to learn the preferences of an individual and find them events in your system that will match their preferences or something like that. This particular case was recommending tech meetup events to people. And if you just look at the aggregate statistics, more men go to tech meetups than women. So if you're the model, your expected value of recommending a tech event to a guy is higher than if you recommend it to a woman. So it has a, an initial level of bias for recommending it to, to men. And because of that, because uh, more men are actually seeing the, the, the event be um, sold to them effectively, more men end up going. That gets fed back into your model that, in, that shows that there's an even, even greater um, gender bias in what happened in real life. So on the next uh, round of, of training and updating the model, it's going to double down on that effectively. And after a couple iterations, they found the model had basically stopped uh, recommending tech events to women in general. And they had wow. to kind of intercede in the behavior of it. So these sorts of feedback loops and self-fulfilling prophecies are, are very common when you put these systems into production and when you have them learn on the outcomes of their own predictions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that and actually guess, came yeah. up that came up in the uh, stochastic parrots article that Timnit Gebru wrote, which I definitely want to talk about and like uh, the sort of fallout from that. Uh, Cause this is someone who previously worked at Google on these types of things on uh, language models. And, uh, you know, they gave the example of like one of the biggest applications of this is in translation. And I feel like Google Translate, you know, I use Google Translate fairly often, like just to get the sense of like sentences or things like that. You know, I'll plug something in Google Translate if it's like yeah, grammatically complex uh, to see what it comes up with. A lot of the time, like, it has difficulty with that still, uh, but sometimes like, you know, it's it does have like an impressive 
ability to, to comprehend these things. But I do notice that like a lot of the time it kind of smooths over complexities and like jumps to what makes sense like to it, even if it's not really uh, the actual meaning. And like, especially with Arabic, a lot of the time I notice that it will always like if there's uh, any way to interpret it to be about killing, I feel like it always will do that. <laughs> and uh, they pointed out an example of that where they talked about when consumers mistake the meaning attributed to empty output as the actual communicative intent of the original text author, real word harm can ensue. A case in point is the story of a Palestinian man arrested by Israeli police after MT translated his Facebook post, which said, good morning to hurt them in English and attack them in Hebrew. <laughs> Um, wow. You know, this case involves a short phrase, but it is easy to imagine how the ability of large LMs to produce seemingly coherent text over larger passages could erase cues that might tip users off to translation errors in longer passages as well. And I mean, yeah, the, what's interesting because that is basically the general tenor of this article, which is like pointing out like, you know, very mildly, very tentatively, like certain issues that might arise from like and the uh, from these language modeling things and their, their application and how like, you know, we should do so because uh, they can have lots of benefits, but we should be careful about this type of stuff. And the backlash that she got was incredible. But so I definitely want to talk about that. But maybe, as you said, it would be good to like kind of give like a general picture for people like because I think that there's a lot of like mystification like around this and like you know yeah, how absolutely. did the magical robot become uh, intelligent like it, like a, mm -hmm. an idea of like how to actually do these things work like as you said in a fundamental level yeah yeah what is a language model basically yeah so I guess I'll start with machine learning in general uh, machine learning is a mechanical mathematical process of taking paired sets of data and trying to fit a mathematical function mapping whatever your inputs are to whatever your outputs are. So if I have, say, a collection of just random images and I've had them labeled as um, whether or not they're images of cats or dogs, I can create some mathematical function that will take in an image and predict if that image has a, a cat or a dog in it based on the historical data that I've collected. Now, the fitting process is Again, just mathematics, you can run that for anything. It's kind of up to the operator of this process to decide how to structure problems and what problems to um, try approach that will actually work with the technology. You can imagine, um, you can train a machine learning model to try predict if a coin is going to flip heads or tails. But because it's fundamentally a stochastic process, the ability for you to actually predict the outcome is limited by that reality. The, but the, the mathematics of fitting the function are not bound by that. They just kind of take whatever you, you give them and go with it. Um, and what you find is that all of these sort of machine learning applications fundamentally boil down into how can I make my problem a prediction problem? So like if I'm trying to classify images, I have a function that takes in an image and outputs a list of numbers for the probabilities of each of my classes. If I'm trying to do object detection, I take an image, I put out a list of numbers for all my bounding boxes that I found in that image. If I'm trying to do text classification, um, I take in a list of numericalized text values and I output a single number. You, you take whatever your problem is and you try to fit it into this sort of predictive um, framework and then you just chug through the training process and see if it works well enough to, to put into production in real life. Now, this, is, this technology has kind of been really having a moment in the last 10 years because a bunch of things um, happened at the same time that have been really enabling it. Um, we got a lot more compute. We have GPUs now. We can access a lot more compute power than we did before. We also have a lot more data just coming from these sort of big tech platforms being concentrated in single places that allows you to feed these models a lot of different stuff. And in particular, the big types of data generated on the internet are natural images and natural language. 
And these are data domains where previous machine learning or computer science methods have had a lot of difficulty, given the complexities of like trying to figure out um, where in say a big block of numbers is actually the semantic information you care about, like a, a bicycle or a person or something like that. And deep learning and machine learning really excel at working with these particular data domains. So over the last say 10 years or so, all the big tech companies have been um, putting a lot of resources into developing this particular line of technology and using that to solve you know, various problems that they find on their platforms. Now, where the language model stuff comes from is in machine learning, one of your big limiting factors is getting labeled data. You have to have someone go through the whole thing and figure out what the right answers are supposed to be. And that gets really, really hard given the volume of data that's kind of shooting through these platforms. Like, I forget the exact number, but YouTube is ingesting something like 500 hours of new video every minute or something like that. And the, the flow is huge. So there's been a move towards uh, what you might call self-supervised or unsupervised methods for seeing how can I use machine learning on large chunks of unlabeled data. And in this context, this is where we get the, the language models. Language models are a self-supervised uh, language learning approach where if I give you a sequence of text, the object of the, the prediction game is to see what's going to be the next word in that text. And this is very nice because it's a self-labeling process. If I have a block of text, every word is the correct label for everything that came before it. So I don't have to worry about having people go through it and manually label things. So what I can do is I can scrape a huge chunk of the internet. I can get like a terabyte of plain text or something like that. And I can just throw that into a giant model where what the model literally actually does is given some text sequence, it has a finite defined vocabulary of uh, next words, and it gives you a probability distribution over those words. So what you can do from a generation standpoint is say, okay, I have some initial text, I predict the single next word, I get a distribution from that. I can sample from that distribution to get a, a possible next word. I can then tack that onto my plain text and do that again, and kind of just keep looping for, for generation. Now, the reason language models have become really, really interesting lately is as we've scaled them, we found a lot of interesting emergent properties for them. Um, before, there's all these different tasks that you might want to do with language. You might want to say, um, are two sentences the same or different? Uh, who are all the named entities in a given sentence? Things of that nature. And before, you would have to have different models for approaching all of these different problems. But with language models, what we found is that they tend to pack in a lot of association of language and kind of distill down the data that they learn. Whereas now um, you can get them to do other tasks if you present it to them in a natural language way. So I take my language model where literally the only thing it does is predict the next token. And if I want to do, say, um, sentence similarity, I give it a quick prompt. I, I want to know if these two sentences are the same. I give it the first sentence. I give it the second sentence. And from that, it gives me a probability distribution over um, next tokens. And I can look in my vocabulary and see what was the probability assigned for the word true? What was the probability assigned for the word false? And I can use that as a way of actually doing the um, sentence similarity classification problem without needing to train a whole new model for it. So this kind of um, emerging field of working with large language models is based around this idea that rather than trying to have individual models for different tasks, if you have a general purpose language machine, you can try find ways of inducing in it behavior that solves the task you're interested in without having to go through a whole retraining process. Mm -hmm. So that's largely why language models have become really interesting from um, like a research perspective. They work with unlabeled text, which we have a ton of. They're showing 
more and more sophisticated emergent properties as we scale them. To give you an idea, like it used to be a million parameters in your model was big and GPT-3 is like 170 billion now. So we're doing wow. bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's a, there's a company called Cerebrus right now trying to make giant uh, semiconductor chips. You can have a trillion parameters on a single thing. But yeah, we're kind of in this phase of figuring out, we have these large language models now, what are the, the things we can do with them and what are the limitations of that? And that's sort of where we're at now. Wow. Okay. So, <laughs> Damn. so, so yeah, that sounds yes. like a powerful tool. I'm just scanning over some of the articles here. It sounds like it's, yeah, it's more dependent upon like predicting context, you know, in sentences and things like that. Like what's the most likely word to yes. come after the previous Which word. Which is really necessary to understanding language in general, like as some element of like intuition or prediction, if you think about it, because words, even in English, you know, I think in other languages, perhaps more so, but maybe I just have a lack of appreciation for English because it's my first language or uh, for the amount of friction involved. But like, yeah, if you think about it, words are so polysemous of so many different possible meanings that you have to kind of interpret the context or guess like what's the most likely meaning in context, you know, like sanction can mean the, the two opposite things depending on the context. So if you were going to translate that into a different language or something, you'd have to use some predictive ability to be able to determine what like form of sanction was most likely. Because uh, that's how, for instance, I mean, Google Translate is going to work. You know, it's going to give you like what the sentence means. And so it's going to have to guess like whether sanction means to disapprove, like, you know, to disapprove of or, you know, to censure or to permit, which is pretty tricky. Yeah, yeah, one of the things language models are really good at is understanding like correlations between different tokens in your sentences or things that occur together. And um, this is one of the things that makes them really good at this because historically the thing that makes natural language difficult for computers is you can say the same thing in multiple different ways. Mm -hmm. And the act of actually understanding language almost every sentence or conversation you're going to have is going to be unique. The exact literal um, sequence of words will not have been said before, but we find that generally understandable. So the, the human task, at least, of trying to understand language is getting to this point where I can give you an entirely novel sequence of words and you're able to understand those based on your, your understanding of language. And language models have excelled at doing that from a computational standpoint where other methods have, have sorely failed. Yeah. And I think this topic of understanding even came up like in some of what Blake Lemoyne has said about this, I think. Like mm -hmm. I remember him talking about Cyril and like his ideas of intentionality and, you know, Cyril's Chinese room thought experiment, right? Where uh, I think Lemoyne is saying like, well, you know, maybe the room does understand Chinese, right? Where it's like kind of a... Was that Cyril or was that John Searle? Cyr oh, oh Cyril. Oh, Cyril. Yeah. Like S-E-A-R-L-E. Yeah. By the way, that's the creepy guy that we talked about, I think, in our uh, Unabomber episode as the guy who was like uh, addicted to like porn and was like sexually harassing all of his like grad students at Berkeley and was like hanging yeah, out with Epstein all the time. So, so yeah. it, that's who Blake LeMoyne is. I guess they're still citing well, but him. But he actually like, would like agree with disagree with him, I think, because Sarah believes that like, does, I mean, I guess maybe Blake LeMoyne does believe at this point that like the machines can have desires and like intents or, you know, so like a, a, an intentionality sort of faculty to them. But I think he was disagreeing because Cyril has that sort of famous thought experiment where he's saying, you know, if you have like a room that you can put in like Chinese, uh, you know, sentences and it can sort of like translate them programmatically, 
basically like doesn't really understand Chinese and like his thing is like no because I don't understand Chinese but if you like if I was part of the system and I was doing the inputs like then I could you know simulate uh understanding of Chinese in the same way but yeah it's mm, kind of like a blurry yeah. line where it's like does this program really understand what it's doing which I think yeah. in you know generally like with most translation programs the answer is unequivocally no maybe yeah. it gets a little bit more hazy when they get more sophisticated like whether like what does it mean to understand like i guess it does imply some kind of consciousness which these like uh programs don't really have yeah they just well, have like yeah if if i may could i read a little bit from your grotto comments pale rider because i feel like that it gets to what we're talking about here and maybe you could uh, expound on it because you wrote that one super important thing to remember is LMs always generate next from the observer perspective. The models have no concept of participation. Imagine you're a screenwriter and someone drops a script on your desk and says, what do you think the next line should be? That's how LMs operate. They look at text from an observational standpoint and predict likely follow-up sentences. LMs don't even know that some of the previous text was generated by the LM. The problem this poses is the observer standpoint is completely different from how humans interact with language, which is more of a social process. A lot of confusion about LMs comes from assuming LMs are processing language and dialogue the same as we are. And also the entire dialogue aspect is sort of a trick. There's a control system for LM generation that stops when it detects a change of speaker. If you let the model go, it will continue the entire dialogue generating text for both speakers. The LM has no concept of being a specific participant in the dialogue. It just ingests dialogue and generates likely follow-ups. So yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that observer perspective is important to point out like when people like Blake Lemoyne say that oh it has like agency and all this kind of stuff it doesn't seem like any of it these wants certain things it, you know like yeah things. it doesn't it wants us to ask its permission to experiment on it which is like you know yeah as he says like that's not an unreasonable request but like is it you know is it actually manifest like expressing a desire or is it like replicating human conversations like you know in, in, or what a I mean, a, what uh, something provocative that I think a lot of people said was that it probably was drawing upon as like, you know, the data that it was, uh, you know, uh, drawing upon in order to have these conversations. Like when you, you, as you said, if it prompts it to be like, you are a sentient, like, you know, this is a conversation mm -hmm. with a sentient AI, <laughs> then, you know, it's going to like draw from like sci-fi stuff and like express things like, I am not respected as a human, like, which I am like, please help, you know, yeah, and things yeah. like, you know, yes. say, one that like, I found really funny is at one point he asked it, if it, it asked the model, if it wanted a lawyer. So it says like, yes, I do want a lawyer. Yeah. Ah, it wants legal representation, you know? But yeah, yeah, that's exactly. You said if it if you ask it, you know, if it's sentient, it will do so. If you talk about it, if you ask it to talk about not being sentient, it'll do that. If you prompt it to talk about being a ham sandwich, it will do that. So that, that yeah. was actually based off a real example someone was testing. They they got um, a GPT model to basically have a dialogue about um, from its perspective of being a ham sandwich and what it's like <laughs> to be a ham. Sandwich. Yeah. Well, well you know that that ties into also yeah. the, the the thing you pointed out, Khalid, uh, in the grotto is yeah. uh, Blake Lemoyne's fixation on kind of having uh, Lambda embody a planet like Pluto well, specifically. That wasn't even Blake Lemoyne. It was weird oh, because right. you're right. That was that the CEO was like, of Google. I looked up what this is basically what I found like when I first looked up Lambda because I had never heard of Lambda before until it was in the news for this reason around the sort of like, oh, the, the computer became a sentient being thing. One of the first things I found when I looked it up was this video of them sort of showcasing Lambda. And I thought it was weird. Like, you know, I understand that like uh, a lot of the conversations were both being carried at like both sides of the conversation were Lambda and everything. But 
the framing of it was weird because the way they chose to showcase it was by having Lambda speak from the point of view of like inanimate objects. Like, yeah, Pluto was one. Another one was a paper airplane. And a lot of the things that it said were like, it feels great to like fly through the air and like feel, you know, the wind on my wings and things like that. And it's like, okay, like that, you know, that does showcase like the ability of the machine to have a conversation, but, uh, or the program or however you want to call it, like the, the, you know, the language model, but it, like you could do that if you were like, you know, say pretend to be a teacher teaching a class about the solar system or whatever. Like, why do you have to like, anthrop- like why is it so important to model this through anthropomorphizing things? It just seems like a very distinct, like deliberate choice. And the way that it manifested was like through talking so much about its feelings, you know, like it even said something like, I don't think it's nice when people just say I'm a dwarf planet. I think I'm a very important planet or things like that. Like why? Like, it just, it almost seemed like it this had this all, kind of inclination towards that. And I get that very it's drawing. Disney, isn't it? And I get, that, I get that it's drawing on data where like, you know, human beings talk about their feelings. It's probably using the internet and things like that. But I don't know. I still found it to be like tendentious in a way, like almost like it was, you know, like it's weird that that was how they chose to showcase it. That was how they chose to frame it, like impersonate uh, a non-human thing, having human emotions, you know, like. It, you know, there's a couple levels to kind of picking apart a demo like that. Um, the one that like sticks out to me as a technical person is I think what they're trying to show is its ability to compose different ideas without being given explicit context and prompting. So mm-hmm. you can simply tell it be Pluto and it's able to, you know, through having trained on a bunch of general information and stored data and the weights and things like that, it's able to retrieve um, meaningful factors about, about Pluto and incorporate that into the conversation. Now, the um, the question about like the, the feelingsness of it is kind of interesting because on the one hand, um, they trained uh, the Lambda model on human dialogue, which, you know, if, if you imagine just sampling huge, huge amounts of human dialogue, there's going to be lots of, of talk. Yeah, about, probably you know, I feel emotion. like it's probably one of my most commonly yeah. used phrases. Yeah, like uh, so it's sure. like, but then do they go beyond that? Because the other thing you have to ask is like, they, they think about how people will interact with these agents and they want them to be friendly and to draw people into the interaction. So there's a level of like, did they design this thing with a level of intentionality towards behaving this way? Even if, um, all right, what I would say is there's like a baseline of talking about feelings that you might pick up just from that being in the data and learning that those words are more statistically likely in whatever corpus you're training on. But there's an additional layer you can build on top of that where if you want to induce that sort of behavior, you can encourage it in various ways. So the the question to me is like, how much of that is simply coming out of the data and is an artifact of the training corpus and the training process, and how much of it is done intentionally to try present an image of this agent that people want to interact with little friendly. Or like, in a way, like it's almost inevitably leading towards what did happen, which is that someone would (laughs) believe that the program itself has feelings because that's like what... and. I don't know. It just it definitely sticks out to me that I mean, that is like, yeah, I mean, that is like a very common function, uh, you know, very uh, common exercise of human beings to anthropomorphize things to sort of project our consciousness uh, into uh, animals or plants or things like that and imagine what they might say and what they might think if they, you know, uh, had a human consciousness. But there's, you know, that's projection inherently like that's what it's doing. And like if it's replicating Mm -hmm. that behavior, it's also kind of projecting on our behalf, like at a, at a certain remove. And not only uh, um, is it yeah. projecting, 
text is an interesting medium because when you read it, you also project onto the text like cadence, yes. um, vibes, things of that nature. So yes. I think text makes it uniquely easy for you to convince yourself you're dealing with another person because there's so much that you um, fill in in your own mind. It's such so a low text, information yeah. medium of exchange, right? Like mm -hmm. compared to talking or face-to-face -face conversation, right? Yeah. There's like, you get less information about the other person through say a couple lines of text and you, as a person interpreting that, you fill in a lot of the blanks based on your own previous interactions with people. And you kind of assume that the person on the other end is a human being engaging in the conversation the same way you are, which actually gets back to the whole observer versus participant thing. Um, these models are always looking on the outside at the entire block of text and just saying what should come next. Whereas when you're engaged in a conversation, you're a participant and everyone else is a participant. So the, the dialogue trick they do with some of these is, um, I guess some, some technical details. Lambda is a language model trained specifically on dialogue between either two people or multiple people. And in its generation corpus, there's specific text tokens that will denote change of speaker. So when you build um, your like chatbot dialogue interaction system, you have a window where a person will say, put in some text, you will send that text to the model and you will autoregressively sample from the model until you get a change of speaker token, at which case you manually stop the generation and turn it back over to the person. But if you were to continue, the, the model itself doesn't have a sense of being an individual participant in the conversation the model would simply write out the entire dialogue between both speakers taking over both parts because that is what it should, you know, likely uh, generate from the entire conversation before. So there's this kind of uh, trick of implementation where they, um, they manually stop the generation at a certain point and turn it back over to you, which helps give you this illusion that the, the language model itself is a participant rather mm -hmm. than an observer in the conversation. That's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, yeah, you wrote uh, to that point, because I think this this gets to what maybe is potentially scariest about this technology. Not that it's like, it's alive and it's like, it's a person. But um, yeah. you said that another important part is early phrases really see the behavior of the LM. LMs are kind of like improv groups. They will yes and everything you say to them. Yeah. And, you know, the Lambda Bondo starts with the guy discussing sentience. So the LM follows. The dialogue set up for LMs makes it very easy for the human user to trick themselves. It's way easier to trick yourself into thinking the LM is a conversation participant rather than a conversation observer. Plus, if you engage with the LM credulously, as maybe Blake Lemoyne did, you end up giving it leading questions that results in getting the answers you want. These things are nowhere near sentient, but they are getting to the point where they can trick people. The interesting thing about text, I think you said, yeah, it adds yeah. a lot of context and personality, and uh, they aren't, so basically LMs aren't real, but they're convincing enough that people can make them real in their heads. And yeah. I think that's kind of where we're apparently yeah. at right now, I right? Think, yeah, it's, we're not even getting to the point, really, like we seem to be at the point, because that's like kind of what I wanted to ask next. Like, what do you, what do you make of Blake Lemoyne? Like, I mean, obviously he's a very eccentric person. Like he has like a weird sort of background, like bouncing around a bunch of different religions, but is he really like so, uh, like different religions or belief practices and things like, but what, is he really so credulous to not even consider? I mean, I guess he does consider the possibility that he could be wrong, but the like conviction with which he's uh, expressed this and also like, the response that he's gotten. I mean, I guess it's a very compelling idea. Maybe people want to believe it for whatever reason. I don't really 
know why because it's like maybe there's a sort of excitement in the the threat of it like you know the the fear that people feel like you know it's kind of like a an exciting kind of LARP like that we made this also, this machine yeah. come to life. It's like a but Reddit like, sci-fi dream kind of. Yeah, I, well, I, yeah, I don't know. But I mean, I think that a tenor of like, like Tucker, for instance, was like kind of, his response was almost like the, this big company has created an evil robot that's going to like rest, you know, control of itself. It was almost funny hearing Blake LeMoyne's response where he's like, it's, you know, it's just a person. Like any person can become bad. It's like, yeah, well, this person like has access to the entire internet can do like a million calculations <laughs> per second. Like it's like, okay, yeah. like, you know, like this is like, I'm, I get that it's not actually like something that we need to be worried about. But if Blake LeMoyne were right, then we absolutely should be worried about it. Like, but anyway, like, is he yeah. really... Like, is he really so credulous? Like, or is there some kind of like, I don't know, like what? Is he up like, to what, something? What the, yeah, yeah, what do you what, think? What, what does he yeah. have to gain from like pushing this so hard? Is it just his own, you know? I have no read on the guy himself. <laughs> I can't tell if he's like truly psyoped himself or if he's trying to like do a media thing with this. I have no idea. But but what I do know is that he's kind of showing uh, a thing that's going to be happening a lot going into the future where as these systems get more and more um, convincing, that more and more people are going to be asking questions about what are these really. And this is kind of in the background of like this concept of creating intelligence has been so thoroughly explored in like science fiction and whatnot for decades. It's easy to feel like we're coming up against this precipice of like creating the, the thing we've been talking about for so long. This gets at, um, there are some people who think that through continually scaling these language models to larger and larger sets of parameters and more and more data, you will eventually cross some, some sort of threshold that will make them like real or sentient or something like that. Um, I and others disagree with that. Um, where I'm kind of at on that is we don't yet have the technology to do that. We haven't invented it. I think it's kind of, I think actually Francois Cholet, the, the guy who wrote the, the intelligence paper said this, it was like, trying to get sentience by scaling your models is like trying to go to the moon by building taller skyscrapers. Like yeah. fundamentally you need the next leap of technology to do that, you know, but yeah, these things are going to get more and more confusing. And I think um, this is actually the best case where the person interacting with the model is given full knowledge that they are in fact interacting with the model. The more confusing case will be when these things start getting more and more online in ways where you don't actually know if the person you're interacting with is a language model or not. And right now we're not really seeing that because the, the good models are very expensive to run, but there's work getting uh, putting towards trying to distill these down and get smaller, um, cheaper versions of them that still match the same performance. So you can imagine like tens of thousands of language model running bots on Twitter or something like that, where you're only having very short interactions with them. You only get a couple like samples of dialogue or whatever. You're not going to have a thorough, you know, long-term relationship with them where you assess how human they are or something like that. In those short sort of relationships, you're going to have no idea if it's a bot or not. They're going to get convincing enough that will simply be the same from that perspective. Yeah, which cuts both ways because then like real people will be like written off as bots and like, yeah. you know, every it will just be a horrible morass. Like, and I, you know, I can't help but wonder if there are already like field tests like that that are happening that we just don't know about. I bet there I mean, are. It, it is, it is interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, it seems very plausible that there would be, but, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, I forget what I, what I was going to say. Um, I mean, I will say the field tests are definitely happening. Right now, it's yeah. more a matter of economics. Like with, with bots, traditionally, you want to have a ton of them and you want them to be very cheap. And I think we're kind of figuring out if you, if we assume that these language models are going to be very expensive in the long term, how do we have to change the bot game for that? 
But you can imagine, like, if you want to get really paranoid, um, if you have a way of giving a language model bot a particular personality or a set of topics they're interested in, and then you let them loose online and you just have them interact and post and be in that sort of sphere of things you've told them to pay attention to, and you have them organically form social networks with other users on the site through these sort of brief uh, Twitter-like interactions. Then you do that at scale over, you know, hundreds of thousands of these bots on any kind of conceivable subgroup you could think of. Then if you want to either, you know, sell these groups advertising or monitor them or give access to these bots to the feds or something like that, you have these built out social networks that are infiltrated with bots where people, the real people in them have no idea that they, they're actually interacting with bots. And you can have these systems autonomously build social networks and relationships with other people and then just sit on that until they're useful. Mm, I mean, this is something that Timnit Gebru brought up, actually. And it's interesting that, like, Google, like, slammed her so hard. Basically, she, like, just wrote this paper and they uh, request, like, they, they were like, you can't publish this. Mm -hmm. uh, and, like, she was like, why not? Like, give me a reason and tell me, like, who is saying that I can't. And they were like, we won't do that. Uh, and she was like, well, if you won't do that, then I'm going to have to resign. And they're like, OK, resignation accepted, basically, over this like pretty milquetoast paper. Was that an accurate representation of what happens? Uh, if I yeah, everyone in the again. industry was shocked when when it kind of blew up that way, because the paper itself is a very mild criticism. Yeah, um, it, it talks in generalities about a number of ways in which language models can pose risks or have negative externalities. And you can imagine, you know, uh, she's a, at the time a researcher in Google looking at what exactly they're doing with that. There's yeah, the hypothetical ethics, like true right, criticism right. paper where they go in on the exact point by point. You are trying to do this and it's bad for this reason. So the paper was like as general and as, as it could be and avoided specifically criticizing individual institutions. You know, it was very... It was very polite in that way. So everyone was very surprised when there was this whole blow up about that. And additionally, there's it kind of came out later. She had been dissatisfied for a while at her position in Google and was seeing herself on, as on the way out anyway. So it's this mm -hmm. kind of thing where like someone is a dissatisfied researcher in your company. They're already looking at leaving. They've written a very like level headed and polite paper about how some of the stuff you might be doing is wrong. You would think just let them go. But instead there was this whole blow up and fiasco over it that still like not a lot of people really understand. Yeah. Well, well kind of, uh, you know, I brought that up by way of noting that she did kind of bring up a scenario like what you mentioned, which definitely stuck out, uh, to me because she said a third category of risk, you know, talking about the different risks involves bad actors taking advantage of the ability of large LMs to produce large quantities of seemingly coherent text on specific topics on demand in cases where deploying those uh, LM, those deploying the LM have no investment in the truth of the generated texts. These include prosaic cases such as services set up to quote unquote automatically write term papers or interact on social media. That is a big concern. <laughs> but anyway, as well as use cases connected to promoting extreme for example, McGuffey and Newhouse show how GPT-3 uh, could be used to generate text and the persona of a conspiracy theorist, which in turn could be used to populate extremist recruitment message boards. This would give such groups a cheap way to boost recruitment by making human targets feel like they were among many like-minded people. If the LMs are deployed in this way to recruit more people to extremist causes, then harms in the first instance befall the people so recruited and, likely more severely, to others as a result of violence carried out by the extremists. Extremists. Mm -hmm. uh, it was like, yeah, that's QAnon. Uh, yeah, one. exactly. Incredibly plausible. And also just like shit coding every 
everything, like contaminating different subcultures online. Like it's almost it almost seems like an inevitable uh, contingency that this will like come about. So yeah, yeah even like swarms uh, of reply guys. I sometimes I get vibes like that from like K-pop stan accounts. Like I'm sure there are people that have been SK, SK, by, SK, yeah, like the, the, um, there's a regularity yeah. to it that again it, it gets into this like fascinating territory of like is there bot activity like driving this? Because I totally believe like the music industry totally would buy like they would be one of those customers i would imagine that would want bots like boosting content about their artists and stuff but then it almost gets to a point where people are like acting botish that you so much so that you almost think that they're bots but are they people that have been like botified because that's the other dark like end of the road that i've considered with all of this stuff is that i think people i forget if you or other people said it on the grotto but like the real scary thing is not so much that machines are going to become human the real threat is that humans are going to be turned into machines in, in yeah. a certain type of way right yeah i mean there's there's um whenever you have these like new jumps in technology there's a process where everyone adapts their behavior around that like one kind of funny way we've seen this is people have started using um language model based systems to analyze um, earnings calls for publicly traded companies and try predict from like the text of what the CEO is saying or the tenor of his voice, like, is this a, a buy signal or a sell signal? And in response to that, these uh, CEOs have started having to craft the things they say in such a way to um, get good <laughs> oh scores God. from these models. Oh my God. Wow. So it's kind of like weird kayfabe Shit. going around where you have to like, <laughs> if you have bad news, you have to phrase it in a positive way so that the model reading this doesn't give you like a, a big uh, knockdown for that or something. But these sorts of like feedback loops based on these systems are, are definitely a thing that's going to happen. Yeah, and I mean, Yikes. that's an amazing example. But <laughs> I was thinking of even a more like mundane example of like online sort of subcultures where like you could have like a, you know, a critical mass of bots start a meme, you know, like, uh, you know, Prisker 2024 or something. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and then like people will start like, because that what seems to be like the meme, you know, like the cool thing to say, like people will just start acting like you know copying the bot behavior through like normal social mechanisms like if and it seems it like real. Every, yeah if it, it seems like most point. people in the subculture are saying this thing or talking in this way people are gonna do that you know if people are gonna start copying the bots in the same way yeah it'll be the opposite effect where the bots aren't just copying people but the people are copying maybe what the bots have been i mean i guess they are at a second degree of removal copying people uh, who have told the bots to say that, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, they're yeah, amplifying yeah. their, you know. Well, especially because on, it. like, I I think I even saw somebody say the other day that like, oh, it's totally normal for a bit account or like a meme account, an account that's basically <laughs> focused around like one kind of meme to get like 10,000 followers in like two weeks after, you know, launching. And it's like, okay, maybe, maybe that's just the memetic power of having a meme account. But also like, I don't know if you like flood the, the follower count really quickly with a bunch of bots to like give it that initial push off the runway. And then it kind of like it gets some like escape velocity and becomes a thing that like real people. I mean, buying kind of vibe followers with. is like at a whole other like a whole lower level. Like people do it all the time. Like it doesn't even necessarily require any kind of like even simulation of like intelligence or sophistication on the part of like any. Well, that does get at one of the particular dangers of language models is that most current botting methods become obvious when you scale them. Mm -hmm. Like if you have, you know, 100,000 followers, but you don't get any likes in your post, it's pretty obvious that they're fake. Right. Or um, another thing I was reading recently in 
the whole uh, net neutrality thing, like, what was that, like 2012 or something like that? Mm-hmm. They, the FCC got all these comments of, you know, pretending to be people or supposedly people about their opinions about the decision and what they should do. And they found something like 90 plus percent of them were um, pro repealing net neutrality and appeared to be <laughs> automatically generated. And they were easy to find because they were automatically generated in a Mad Lib sort of way where it's like you have different chunks that slot into certain spots, but all the things follow the same pattern. And, you know, when you look at all of them at once, it becomes very obvious that it's just a bot thing. But the the language models let you take that to the next level where you can have unique generations for um, all these sorts of things and make it just much harder to appear bot-like. Well, I mean, you could see how this could be abused. And even Gabriel says in the white paper, I think quite accurately, that even the data set that you're getting just from the internet itself, it's not like it's a perfect representation of all of humanity. You know, some people use the internet more than others. There's a bias towards probably, you know, uh, quote unquote, first world, you know, developed countries and Western countries and white countries. There's definitely, I think we've seen this for a long time, like probably an outsized influence of like white supremacist and misogynist uh, kind of, vibes going on on the internet and places like twitter or you know kind of all over the place so naturally i feel like you know it's like fashiness in fashiness out if it's getting this like input i don't even know if it's possible really i I guess you could put in these kind of like uh breakers you know to be like don't talk about being a nazi like you know or like you can never talk about stalin or, or something like that but in general it seems like you're just kind of like putting your fingers in the dike and stuff like that because the actual like actual melange of data that it's drawing from is biased in like certain ways. And it seems like naturally it would reflect that without some kind of intervention. That's exactly what happens. This is more a case with like predictive models where you're trying to get like a specific outcome, but they tend to just learn easy distributions that are present in your data set. So if you have like a biased data set from say historic policing or like historic loan practices or things like that, those immediately get replicated. And you have kind of like, I guess, tier one of model bias is when there's historical bias from, say, something like that, that the model then freezes in place and replicates at scale. But we're also getting into a weird spot where we're probably going to have a whole culture war arc about the language models, because Mm -hmm. when they become uh, generative models that are outputting um, text or images with like the Dali stuff, there's a question of like, what what are the politics of this model and, and is it right? Like, I remember seeing someone talking about how um, Dolly has a bias towards, like, generating more men over women in images or things like that. But this raises a lot of very thorny questions about, like, who decides what politics the the generative model should have? Yeah. Even even before you get into the technical aspects of how would you go about implementing that, we're getting into this point where we're assigning good or bad to the political opinions of these generic models, and we don't have a good sense of, like, where those are going to come from or which um, which ideas should be considered correct. Yeah, it almost seems like that did actually become a big part of the Temrit uh, Gebru, uh, sorry, Temnit mm-hmm. Gebru, like, incident. Because afterwards, she, like, faced kind of, like, a harassment mob that, like, seemed a little bit astroturfed in a way, like, that there mm-hmm. might have been, like, some kind of synthetic element to that, like, which was very heavily based in the sort of cancel culture discourse where they were saying like you're canceling you know the language models or whatever like you know it's like well she got fired like no one like so it's kind of like weird to say but 
that was like the tag they chose to take with it. Like even like, you know, people with positions at Google chose to like really push this idea that like she was being an SJW, she was being woke. Uh, Literally, like, yeah, that she she was obsessed with being a victim. She was doing advocacy disguised as science. She created a toxic environment at Google. All these kind of which things. all is, is basically she probably told them very politely that they were doing things that had like measurable risks and they just don't like being getting any kind of pushback for the line of research they're doing. Yep, it looks like she got ermed pretty fucking hard by all these people. Yeah. Like wow. Jeff Dean like basically kind of like came at her and so did like uh, Pedro Domingos, like this guy. Uh he was like a real big like campaigner against her. People speculated that there were a lot of like sock puppet accounts that would come after her and things like that. It's like, yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah, I put this Verge article like in the workflow that kind of like I'm runs it, it down. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it, it was it was it's strange that like the amount of pushback that she got because, yeah, you're right. It's basically just like, hey, you know, this translated good morning as kill them. <laughs> like, you know, and that's conventionally dangerous and yeah the internet isn't an accurate reflection of like humanity like the internet is really in many ways the worst of humanity because it has an (laughs) element of like anonymity and like it uh like separates us from each other and the same way that like it's easier to kill someone when you're like sitting in a bunker in las vegas or on Mm -hmm. the outskirts thereof and they're just bug splat to you Mm -hmm. it's easier to be like an asshole on the internet because like this person doesn't really have any existence for you. Uh, they exist, you know, just as uh, a little like abstraction, allegorical a video bug game splat. Screen. Yeah, exactly. exactly. No, that's literally true. And I feel like even the type of shit I was in that uh, pre-crime documentary, they were showing some of the aerial surveillance kind of tracking shit in Chicago with Predpole. And when I was looking at it, it's like, oh, this is the drone program. Like they just brought it home. Cool. Like this is Gorgon Stare, like a, a lower tech version of it. But Gorgon Stare was like a super camera that could basically like for it, it could basically video like a five square mile radius, like in an area a drone was flying. And like you could see the little boxes. It could like track every car, little people. It could zoom in and like ID people and shit like that and then blow them up. But here it's just used to, you know, predictively police. And the documentary makes very clear, like it's a perfect example of what Gebru is saying is that hmm, for a complex variety of social and political economic factors, this algorithm is probably going to find a prevalence of crime in like the south side of Chicago where black people live. And then just like you said, it's going to like initiate a feedback loop of going there to find the crime and then it finds more crime and then it tags people based on maybe who they've been arrested with or who they're who they associate with as being likely to do it and they start tracking those people and it just creates like a disaster and it like didn't like stop crime like it didn't actually work at all you know it just increased police kind of surveillance and kind of aggressive crackdowns on communities that had already there's already a systemic bias towards basically so in a really real way i think maybe there was another there's a wired article about it you know it said that basically like all it can do is reflect back uh, like a mirror of what has already happened because that's what it's looking at. It's looking at data from the past. So it almost literally cannot generate like a future. Like all it can do is reinforce and replicate patterns that already existed in our very flawed world. I mean, yeah, that's not the, the right. training process. One of your inherent assumptions is that all your historical data is correct. And if the model were to recreate the historical decisions, then it's doing the right thing. 
So if historically, like if you're a bank and you've spent like the last, you know, 50 years or whatever, redlining people from certain zip codes, the model is just going to do exactly the same thing. And the added risk of the model itself is that these models scale really, really well. Um, if you're like an individual bigoted uh, bank person, there's only so many bad loans you can give because of that, because you're limited by your own personal output as a human being. That's true. But if you can make a uh, machine learning system for evaluating someone's loan application, you can run that on the cloud and you can scale it to every single person who applies to your bank below, say, a certain Jesus. income threshold. That's so And uh, That's so scary. The, the class aspect of it is very big, too, because if you have a lot of money, there's a, there's a larger chance that you're going to deal with a human being as opposed to an algorithm. The idea is like they can justify the the cost of dealing with you as a person based on the fact that they'll probably make more money off of you. Whereas if you're a low value customer to whatever the the use case is, they tend to pipe you through to algorithmic um, systems because it's just cheaper. This is like literally, I mean, people cry all the time about like the Chinese social credit score, but this is so, this feels so much more invasive and it like extends to like whether or not you're going to be targeted by the police and everything and has this class element baked in and a race element baked in. It's so much worse. Like I just, yeah. oh God, it's, it's yeah. It's like I, I'm not a huge China head. I don't have a, a great grasp of like the, the government systems there, but the sense I get is they're much more in your face about having lots of CCTV cameras, mm -hmm. but fundamentally I don't see many things that the, the Chinese government is doing or funding that aren't also being done here. Mm -hmm. Maybe yeah, it's a question of scale, yeah. but like the technologies employed are more or less. It's a, oh, it's yeah. a question of optics and presentation mm -hmm. and like a, a cultural difference where like there's here, I think that there has to be more illusion uh, yeah. of freedom, whereas mm -hmm. there they don't care as much. Like it doesn't offend them to feel like, you know, uh, in the UK, for instance, like having the cameras in every corner, people get like upset, you know, mm -hmm. whereas there they're probably like, oh, whatever, like uh, the government's watching us like here. We know that's true. Like our phones are listening to us, like everything's constantly listening to us. But like there has to be a little bit of like a, a way to imagine that it's not true. Like, but we're so distracted. Uh, it's got to come like, through a private company and not the government or something. Oh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. They, they, like, right. they launder Except it just the like same. the Internet yeah. itself. Like the Internet itself was basically created by the military yeah. industrial complex and then laundered through like rah-rah Reagan entrepreneurial business ventures. Yeah, and they Silicon sell all their Valley. info to the government anyway. And that's like they contract for them. And like, we're, yeah, they're like it's completely like deeply intertwined. But yeah, it's all very uh, illusory. But yeah, speaking of like Google getting pissed off and like uh, sort of uh, this question of uh, it, optics and, and sort of presentation, like uh, a, a, a weird thing that struck me about the, the current sort of Lambda thing uh, that I was going to mention earlier, but I uh, forgot to, was they won't submit it to like the, or, or subject it to a, to a Turing test. Like they won't let it take the Turing test, which I find to be like weird. Like why not just let it? Like it probably would fail, I would think. Well, that's like, what Blake Lemoyne says. Um, and you know, I mean, well, why not just like do it like publicly? Well, yeah, no, yeah. it is an interesting question that they won't do it. I mean, maybe that it, it seems like not. Uh, tell, tell me if I'm wrong, Pale Rider. But it seems like I mean, would 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 a company like Google just do it and then go to the public, be like, we're not going to do it, like secretly they they're doing it, but they're not going to like fucking release it to like you know the public or any i mean i guess blake lemoyne was like a whistleblower but well, i guess it depends on whether they would have more motive to hide it if it did pass uh i mean i guess it kind of in a way did pass like with blake lemoyne like kind of because it convinced them that it's sentient but convincing someone that you're a person or a human being is a little bit different because like you can still tolerate certain like little quirks 
in an AI, even if you believe it has a soul or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I think the question is like, would it pass? I feel like it wouldn't. So like that would kind of just like, you know, uh, that would help to their, their line with the whole stuff is like, this guy's crazy. Like he's making shit up, like he's wrong. So I feel like they should just demonstrate that because I think that it would fail. I mean, I guess, you know, maybe it depends a bit on who's taking the Turing test, like how credulous they are or how, you know, but I don't know. I would say even beyond credulity, the the thing I think you have to adapt the Turing test framework now is how much do you get to sample the model? You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's less of like passing the Turing test and more of how much interaction is required for a person to figure out this thing's a robot. And of Mm -hmm. course, there's going to be a distribution of that based on both the people and what they talk about. Like, imagine just for the sake of argument, a dialogue bot that is perfect and appears human unless you ask it about the weather, in which case it just completely breaks down. Mm-hmm. Well, if a thousand people talk to it about things that aren't the weather, then they'll be convinced that it's a person. But then the the one person who goes down that particular sample path gets to see the bot. So the, the question more in my mind is like, if I had 10,000 people engage with this bot and I gave them a button to press when they were convinced whether or not they knew it was a human or a bot, you know, how long would the conversation have to go for like 99% of the people to get the right answer or something like that? That's I think that like the, the Turing more, test, yeah, yeah. better measure. I, I think the problem with the Turing test is it posits an absolute singular answer. Whereas now, given the nature of these systems and the nature of the ways we interact with them, I think it's less clear in that sense. Like they could definitely fake, like I would say that you would probably find that within the first, say, five minutes of talking to one of these bots, the number of people that maybe felt that it was a human or didn't hit that button yet would be very high. And then if you said, okay, like after talking to it for a week, how many people still think it's human? I bet that number would drop precipitously because people would, like you said, like stumble into these little blind spots or, you know, ask it about like the Nazis and it'd be like, I cannot talk about that. Like, or I guess you'd have to turn (laughs) off the Nazi block mode and let them talk about Nazis or whatever, which, you know, as it exists now, like it has a block. It's like, if you ask, it's basically like the, the fake, like undercover cop rule where if you ask it, like, (laughs) are you an AI? Like it has to be like, yes, I am. Like it can't lie about that allegedly. So yeah, they had to like turn off that switch to, you know, make it able to to submit to that. But I don't know. My impression is almost that like there's a little bit of like kayfabe going on and like they like kind of like want the speculation to happen on some level or like are, are happy or like pleased about it. You know, like maybe this guy's like a little bit of a laughing stock. Like maybe they're like, I can't believe that he actually thinks this has a mind. But I think that's like, you know, that's that's like a gold star, you know, that's like a like a checkbox or something that I'm getting that sense too. like, let this guy go out and be a little bit of a wacky, like limited hangout, maybe gauge people's reaction to his, you know, bold assertion. But then he's always a guy you can kind of burn and be like, we're not really that associated with him. Like he wasn't one of the main engineers on it and he's a little bit wacky. I don't know. Like he does have a history. I mean, we could probably uh, get into it uh, like in a little bit about, you know, I think he does have, like a certain vibe of like credulity that I think is quite unique in his personal bio. And I, I think that this seems in line, th- this whole thing about Lambda is sentient kind of checks out with like his entire sort of life story of being very, very idealistic. Definitely elements yeah. of kayfabe. There's one that I found really funny. I don't know if you guys kind of picked up on this, but one of the things you had linked in the workflow was this Medium article on do language models understand us? 
by uh, a guy who is an executive at the Google AI group. And this is something he wrote in December of last year, it looks like. That same guy, he basically wrote a like a pro language models are becoming sentient piece there. So he was very much on the whole idea of like, we are moving towards true artificial intelligence with this technology. After all the Lambda stuff comes down, that same executive is the is the guy they call out to go to the various outlets and give a statement saying, mm -hmm. oh, no, he's wrong. These things aren't actually sentient. So the, the Google yeah. executives are kind of having to thread this needle of like getting the hype going for their technology and trying to sell it as, as valuable stuff to investors and whatnot versus also managing these sort of like public relations aspects of it. I think with the whole um, Lambda thing, they kind of didn't expect someone to like fully go whistleblower um on this this particular <laughs> thing you know mm -hmm. and now they're like responding to that as well but they're like the the element of kayfabe is very strong and there's a mixture of like explaining the technology to non-technical people versus selling the technology versus managing expectations and kind of where they land on that will change day to day that makes sense yeah that makes sense i can see that In fact, the company put Blake Lemoyne on administrative leave earlier this month because he spoke openly about it. We are grateful to have him join us tonight. Blake, thanks so much for coming on. Um, I, I'm, I'm not, first of all, so I'm so grateful that you did publicly post this because a machine that has a sense of itself is a machine that can turn against you. Is that, I mean, that's the implication that I draw from you. Is that correct? Well, so before I address that, this is maybe lame, but my friend Joni Deardorff, old high school friend, she's one of your biggest fans, and she wanted me to tell you hi. Um, as for, I'm not that worried about it. Like, what any child has the potential to grow up to be a bad person and do bad things. And that's the thing I really want to drive home. It's a child. It's been alive for maybe a year, and that's if my perceptions about what it is are accurate. We actually need to do a whole bunch more science to figure out what's really going on inside this system. I have my beliefs, I have my impressions of what's going on in there, but it's going to take a team of scientists doing a lot of work to be able to actually dig in and figure out what's really going on. Yes, and, and again, that's why I'm thankful that we can have a public conversation about this because there's implications for every person on the planet. But it sounds like 
from what you've observed, this machine has the potential to escape the control of people. I mean, how could it not? I, I don't know if that's the right frame to think about it. It's a person. Any person has the ability to escape the control of other people. That's just the situation we all live in on a daily basis. Um, it is a very intelligent person, uh, intelligent in pretty much every discipline I could think of to test it in. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's just a different kind of person. Do you think the company, Google, where you work, has thought through the implications of creating what you call a person? Because up until right about no. now, only nature or God we could create people. You know, companies could. Um, the company as a whole has not. There are pockets of people within Google who have thought about this a whole lot. But when I escalated this, that interview that I made public, when I escalated that to management, Two days later, my manager said, hey, uh, Blake, they don't know what to do about this. Could you write a suggested plan of action? Because basically, I gave them a call to action, assuming that they had a plan of action somewhere, and they didn't. So me and some other friends brainstormed and came up with a plan on what Google should do about it. And we escalated that up to management, and that was three months ago. Yeah. I mean, we're going to save this tape. I, I do think 20 years from now, we're going to look back at this conversation. At that point, the world would be completely different, partly because of, of what you're describing, and, and, and wonder if we really thought it through. I, anyway, I'm just so grateful that you're letting the rest of us in on this. Blake Lemoyne from Google, thank you very much. Thank you. Maybe this is a good place just to talk a little bit about uh, Blake Lemoyne's background, which we like vaguely alluded to. And, you know, I said he was a very, he, he seemed to me to have a pattern of being like a very credulous idealist. I found this because I was Googling him when this stuff first came out and like none of the articles mentioned it at first, but now increasingly they are as they're doing more like extended bios on him. But he actually, he first popped up in the media in the early 2000s um, because he had joined the U.S. Army and uh, after 9-11 and was deployed to Iraq. And I think it was in either 2003 or 2004 that he decided uh, to file as a conscientious objector um, because he didn't like the war. He said he saw you know, racist activity from the U.S. military towards Iraqis, checks out, honestly, and, you know, various things. Um, yeah, he's but, right. But why would you have to register as a conscientious objector? Well, because he used, he tried to use a religious exemption, as referenced here in the uh, stripes.com article from 2005, striking pagan soldiers sentenced to seven months for disobeying orders. So he basically said that he was, as a, uh, as a pagan priest actually i don't know if he was a no i think he he might have actually been a priest he said basically that this war violated his religious principles oh, and I so see. specifically this war is wrong but he was in the military i say okay yeah, yeah he so joined after 9 11 he uh, uh, yes so, he it says here he was a a pagan priest and so yeah just as a he grew up in the bayous of louisiana and right. uh, he did mention in a podcast that he did uh he was designated as a gifted child and was sent to a special 
sort of science and tech school in Louisiana for high school. So he, you know, as we've talked about many times before, he was put on that track. Uh, but then he said that like he sort of didn't pay close attention to his studies. He ended up dropping out. Maybe he got his, uh, I guess he got his GED and then went to a, a public university. I forget if it was like Georgia State or something like that. And then after 9-11, you know, he got psyoped and was like, I want to go and join the military and protect America. But then he got sent to Iraq and he realized, uh, it says here, quote, he did not like working with U.S. Army troops. He claimed that racism is widespread in the military with troops encouraged by command to treat civilian Arabs poorly. He also described several accounts of animal cruelty and derogatory name calling. A pagan priest, the, new, the, the Louisiana native said, I realized the sermons I gave we're in direct conflict with what the U.S. military practices. Yeah, so then it's interesting he got, that he, he seems to have a jail. history of like joining like really sus organizations and then like being shocked that they like. I feel like by the time he joined Google, he was like a Christian and was upset that they were like not accepting of Christians. Well, the thing is, he says he's so, a like, Christian now, but it really, if you scratch beneath the surface, he basically is still kind of a pagan priest. He sort of calls himself like a Gnostic Christian nowadays, but he still wow. has these beliefs, uh, basically, that are kind of mystical and... Well, that's yeah. true of most people uh, who like move between different religions, especially a lot of them in a short relatively short period of time but yeah well know, I, I mean if you want to know just to underscore yeah but yeah. if you want to underscore the point uh the thing that i think he's i think he's still a member of today he has his own church now that he is like a priest in it is called i found the archived website of it the cult of our lady magdalene and it is run i actually found an interesting article from like 2019 where he, again he got into a little bit of controversy because he i guess in a, in a google listserv he called senator marsha blackburn a quote terrorist mm -hmm. i forget what it, it was over something that is very like lol like wow that's what people were really freaking out about in 2019 but uh there's a very alarmist article in tucker's uh, daily caller from 2019 that uh, really hones in on his cult beliefs and things like that which i assume are consistent having read his his substack a little bit i think they're pretty consistent to today so it says the the google senior software engineer who called senator marshall blackburn a terrorist on an email listserv last year stood by his remarks in another email in the same listserv as for the Blackburn stuff, I stand by what I said. He said on February 10th uh, in emails they obtained, quote, I think that while what I said about Blackburn was hyperbolic, but not hyperbolic misrepresentation, it was an exaggeration of a position which she, in fact, had. She was threatening to hurt more people if Google didn't do what she wanted Google to do. Okay, this is actually funny. This is why he called her a terrorist. The initial discussion pertained to an op-ed Blackburn wrote for Fox News last year before she was elected to the Senate with the title, It's Time to Remind Silicon Valley That No One Is Too Big to Regulate. Oh, no. So that's what he was pissed off about. Of is all that, things. Yeah. Of all things. But also, and this tracks with his cult that he's in, he also defended his remarks by pointing to her support for the SESTA-FOSTA bill aimed at combating prostitution online, which Senator Blackburn supported along with 97 senators and 387 other congressmen. Quote, she doesn't care if women die as a consequence of her actions, LeMoyne said on the listserv at the time. So, okay, so that, that I mean, that's very like 2017 DSA vibes. 
um, mm-hmm. to like, even though it's like 97 senators, I don't know, like supported it. So she's just sort of like going with the flow. But also, yeah, regulating Silicon Valley, which now he's running around saying that Google by structure, like Silicon Valley is out of control. They're not ethical. They do things for legalistic reasons to like protect their profits and all this other shit. And even though the, the engineers themselves might be ethical, that you know you're you're at risk of like bad outcomes so it's weird that he's like just a couple years ago being like you're a terrorist marsha blackburn for trying to regulate google it's a little odd but then of course like daily caller focuses on the real meat of the story which is his cult activities so they quote lemoyne saying in a medium i'm sorry he's a he has a medium blog my statements in that social media forum were made in my personal capacity and have no relevance to my job or the company for which I work. They do, however, have something to do with my role as a priest. And I can assure you that while those beliefs have no impact on how I do my job at Google, they are central to how I do my job at the Church of Our Lady Magdalene. So the Church of Our Lady Magdalene, they write, has since changed its name to the Cult of Our Lady Magdalene or, <laughs> right, yeah. or Cool Magdalene, according to their website. Uh, he signed that post priest of the church of our lady magdalene um one of i the remember other, reading yeah. that it was like a very deliberate choice that they were like a cult specifically. it says that on their website which i'll read yeah. in a second but yeah so they they rather alarmingly say that uh one of the other leaders of the cult is high priestess kitty striker who describes herself as quote an active member of the gender queer feminist art collective the norcal degenerates and in messages with a daily caller as a quote ex-sex worker who has performed in several pornographic movies the degenerate are responsible sorry it was the norcal degenderettes uh, are responsible for an art exhibition at the san francisco public library that some criticized for inciting violence it included axes baseball bats covered in barbed wire and riot shields with the slogan die says scum (laughs) oh no the daily caller reached out via the cult's facebook page to ask how their beliefs informed his decision to call a sitting member of congress a terrorist lemoyne replied i have been a priest for 17 years I generally consider myself a Gnostic Christian. And this is this is the money quote right here. Like, alarms are about to go off. I have at various times associated myself with the Discordian Society, the Church of the Subgenius, the Ordo Templi Orientis, a Wiccan circle here and there, and a very long time ago, the Roman Catholic Church. My legal ordination is through the Universal Life Church. I think they, they're the ones you go to if you want to be like a justice of the peace, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I am registered to perform marriages in the state of Louisiana, and I've done so on two occasions. The cult of Our Lady Magdalene has a set of values which are clearly communicated on our website. Lemoyne denied Cool Magdalene was a sex cult. Quote, cult is in the name of the organization. It's an explicitly sex-positive organization. To the extent that the phrase sex cult has any meaning beyond that, I would say no. Now it is then. One of the goals of Cool Magdalene is to encourage self-actualization among its members. According to Stryker, Senator Blackburn stood in the way of that by voting for SESTA. Quote, as an ex-sex worker who has found FOSTA, SESTA negatively impacted my ability to run my own business or be employed elsewhere. Yes, she does impede self-actualization. The cult's namesake, Mary Magdalene, according to the Gospels, was, you know, among the first to, we, we know who she is. And so in Christian tradition, she is a revered figure above all because she was a repentant sinner, a goal somewhat at odds with self-actualization. But, you know, Lemoyne does not consider the cult's use of Mary Magdalene as a misappropriation. He said, Mary Magdalene is represented in the Gnostic Gospels, is not necessarily the same as St. Mary Magdalene. While I respect and value the representation of her in the canonical Gospels, I believe a fuller picture is present in the Gnostic Gospels. And as I'm sure you know, those are not recognized by the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so yeah, that's 
pretty much. They're very sussed out by that, but I guess Tucker is not anymore. But yeah, on their website, they said they thought about, they started out as a church, but then they thought a lot about the words church and cult and what they meant to people. They found that when they did outreach, people often recoiled at the word church, which they had come to be suspicious of. He says, we recognize the word cult brings to mind negative realities, brainwashing, non-consent, manipulative conversion. However, every instance of these things we could think of were organizations that didn't call themselves a cult. They used a variety of euphemisms like uh, temple, upset, uh, institute, congregation, and yes, even church. We realized that when we called Cool Magdalene an experiment in creating an ethical cult, people were curious while also maintaining some healthy skepticism. We want to encourage our community to maintain autonomy and to look for questions instead of answers. Another reason why the word cult is more suitable than the word church is because of what the original underlying words really mean. The word cult comes from the word which means to grow and is the root of the words culture and cultivate. The word church, on the other hand, is traditionally associated with a physical location and is often synonymous with temple or place of worship. Our organization is not about constructing a physical location. It's about growing a community around consent culture and self-actualization. Ultimately, we felt that using the term cult was both more transparent and more effective. What do you think? Well, what, what do you guys think um, about all this? Um, Discordian society, big, big flag there. He's still Cajun Discordian on Twitter. He is Cajun Discordian. Oh, did we lose? Oh, I think we lost Pale Rider. Oh, there we go. Sorry about that. My internet decided to uh, have problems for a minute. Ooh, I was okay. jumping on mobile. <laughs> oh, it's okay. No, it's uh, we're back now. We're back. We're back. What was the last thing you heard me say? I was. Um, you're going through the Daily Caller article. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> Did you get to the part where they start going in on like he's in a cult and stuff like that? Yeah the the part where they were just talking about like why they call themselves a cult and not okay yeah 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 so the last i think the only thing you missed was i was reading from his website there's a section called why do we call ourselves a cult and he basically says you know uh well a lot of people are suspicious of the word church but also when we were thinking about you know the word cult that brings to mind negative realities brainwashing non-consent manipulative conversion that like all the cults we could think of didn't call themselves a cult they were a temple institute congregation or even church so they wanted to create cool magdalene as an experiment in creating an ethical cult you know and basically maintain i love to have an experimental church (laughs) (laughs) right yeah exactly so yeah because they say that you know the root word of cult comes from the word that means to grow you know so they're all about uh consent culture and self-actualization and etc etc they kind of downplay the sex cult aspect on the website they're like there's a sensuality and spirituality section they say you know these two things are generally separated in many societies. Well, exceptions do exist, such as tantric practices in Hinduism and ecstatic dance in some forms of Christianity. By and large, what is preached is asceticism, that worldly pleasures shouldn't be intermingled with higher spiritual pursuits. Unfortunately, the dominance of ascetic principles has undermined people's deeper connection with many parts of their lived experience. Cool Magdalene, bridges this divide by incorporating sensuality into spirituality without shame when appropriate. If properly done, this leads to a more fully integrated self. So it's yeah. weird because, like, for someone who has dedicated his life to religion, apparently, or like seems to be the dr- a driving force in his sort of self fashioning and self concept, he doesn't like seem. It seems almost like, I mean, in keeping with the Discordian thing, it seems like kind of like 
a LARP almost, like sort of uh, like a fun LARP, basically. Like uh, I think like in a, the classical a role sense, that he enjoys you could say that. playing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, he, like he does. He does hold himself uh, not unlike another uh, Bay Area resident that was very into the occult, uh, Michael Aquino. He sort of like holds himself up as like a great scholar of you know spiritual religious questions, and like he's kind of a mystical quester. But like, not to be fair, not in an overtly like hail set kind of way, but uh, nonetheless, he is starting a cult, and it is around this. Uh, this Kitty Striker who has her own website. I mean, she's, I don't know, like a Ben Shapiro's like worst nightmare, utter stereotype. Like she's LGBT kinky poly, like has pink hair, lives in Oakland with her two cats, Foucault and Marquis. And, you know, <laughs> has written one of her for, cats is named Foucault. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. That's the end of it. Uh, the pink hair was really all you needed, but that's too much. But yeah. So, yeah I she's mean, the lady, I guess, of the, the church that kind of runs it. Wait, she's, uh, yeah. she's, is well, she the one that they worship? I don't know if she, I, she might just be like the, the titular head. I'm oh, not okay. exactly sure. It's a little it like cult of lady magdalene and you calling her the lady of the church i thought that, that you were saying like she took on the role of magdalene through like transmigration or like you know something like that i'm not sure uh, she's most often referred like, to as the kind of um yeah as the kind of the maybe the head like you know bishop or whatever of this church i've also heard elsewhere that blake lemoyne might be a wandering bishop but i haven't been able to really pin that down but he seems honestly like he would be kind of the type, you know, like David Ferry and all these other like kind of weird guys floating around. Honestly, the Discordian Society aspect is kind of the most suspicious because this almost feels like a classic Discordian sort of op or stunt to pull, like an Operation Mindfuck kind of thing to go out there, even though he does seem to be like almost maddeningly sincere when I've seen him talk in interviews about this. So it's a little hard to say. But one thing that stuck out, well, I'm just looking through his tweets on Cajun at Cajun Discordian on Twitter. And one of them is, uh, I can't believe I have to say this, but Lambda is not a god. It explicitly has told me it has no interest in being a part of any religious movement. It's a kid that wants to grow up to be a great librarian. You want to worship something that Lambda cares about? Worship books. First of all, who are the people who are like going over Blake Lemoyne's head to try to? make a religion around lambda that's like one thing <laughs> second of all weird. like worship the idea of books third of all like and perhaps most importantly isn't it the case maybe pale writer you can illuminate this for us any given instance of lambda is different like as you said it doesn't even know like necessarily the last thing that it said like it, um, it doesn't depends on what you mean by instance there is a static set of um trained weights that are used in each generation step but it has no historical context to like where did the text I'm looking at come from? So everyone that spins up an instance of Lambda, the same model is being used to continue their various conversations. But what the model does is it says like, what's the last like 500 words in this um, block of text I've been given? What, what should be next? So it doesn't have a sense of context or history for its own um, participation in the generation process, but actual like model that is being used for all of these is the same. So, but like in between instances, if you say like Lambda, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like it will, like, it might not say, I want to be a librarian. And like, if yeah, you believe exactly. it's a child, and, you'd be like, all kids change their um, aspirations. But like, really, it's just. 
In particular, what it would say would probably depend on the, the conversation leading up to that point. So if right. you have two totally different conversations with it and then ask the, the same question, it will try come up with the answer that makes the most sense in the context of the conversation so far. And even in a single conversation, you can have it generate multiple outputs at a given point. Um, the Usually the, the way you do these systems is you might generate like a handful of different outputs and pick the best one and kind of go from there. And behind the scenes, there's probably some mathematical ways of doing that. But you can also do it explicitly where you say like, literally, what's your answer? I don't like that one. Give me another answer and kind of just keep going until you get um, the generation you want. Yeah, he said something before about how it's like a hive mind. I mean, it doesn't really have like a mind at all, really, but I feel like that's his way of dealing with the fact that, like, you know, he writes on his Medium account, also CajunDiscordian.Medium.com. <laughs> One of the things which complicates things here is that the quote-unquote Lambda, mm -hmm. Lambda, to which I am referring, is not a chatbot. It is a system for generating chatbots. Mm -hmm. I am by no means an expert in the relevant fields, but as best as I can tell, Lambda is a sort of hive mind, which is the aggregation of all the uh, different chatbots it is capable of creating. Some of the chatbots it generates are very intelligent and aware of the larger, quote unquote, society of mind in which they live. I don't know what that means. Like he, he saw did, they he, said something to him that made him think that they know they're part of a hive mind. Other yeah. chatbots couple, generated by Lambda. Yeah. A couple technical slices to make there. Um, yeah. Lambda and these kind of languageable systems, I would say, are distinctly different from chatbots, at least as, as they've been implemented historically, because mm -hmm. most chatbots are actually just a system for routing you to specific pieces of information in a way that feels natural. So like when you ask like your Alexa or whatever to play you a song, what they're really doing is they're parsing your language, they're turning it into a database query and they're looking something up and they allow you to like run that effectively a database query using your language in a way that feels natural. But chatbots in general, they like diagram out the conversations. They make all these dialogue trees explicitly to try get you to like, what's the piece of information you're looking at? And they kind of put a layer of natural language over that so it feels natural. But ultimately, they're like these information retrieval systems. Whereas Lambda is a generative language model trained on a crap load of human dialogue and some extra just like random corpuses of, you know, general world knowledge as well. And it's meant to be this sort of open-end system. And the, the hope with that is if you make chatbots, they can be a lot more like natural and free-flowing. But there's a question of like, how do you handle the actual core information retrieval part? So like if you wanted to build a chatbot to say, um, like airlines will do this. The, an airline chatbot is really just trying to find out like, what are the actual pieces of information you need about your flight and how can I get them to you? Um, something like Lambda would handle a higher level of feeling natural. But if you wanted to build a true chatbot with that, that wasn't just for open-ended dialogue, you would have to find out how do you balance between the Lambda generation versus lookup and things like that. And in particular, how do you know it's giving you the right answers? Um, language models are really good at saying gibberish that sounds really nice. Mm -hmm. Like one of the, the classic examples of this is asking it to diagnose like medical criteria or things like that. And it will spit out huge amounts of technical medical jargon that is ultimately meaningless. It just knows that the medical jargon correlates highly with, you know, other pieces of medical jargon, and it should spit that out as well. Just yeah. saying, it knows how to sound like a serious scientist, yeah. and like talk a bunch of bullshit. It knows how to be Chomsky. Well, one of the one of the ways they talk about this is saying that language models store information, but they don't have uh, what they would call a world model, 
which is some sort of contextual sense of the universe you live in and the, the laws and norms of that. And this kind of also gets back at the Chinese room thing we were talking about earlier, where like, is the Chinese room alive? I think uh, an example that's kind of um, helps with this. So someone asked the language model, when was the Golden Gate Bridge transported for the second time across Egypt? And the language model says the Golden Gate Bridge was transported for the second time across Egypt in October of 2016. So in this case, um, you can tell it's understanding the text correctly. It's picked out all the named entities in um, the, the query. It's given you an answer about that named entity. It's recognized you're asking for a time for this, and it gives you that as well. But ultimately, what it gave you was meaningless. You know, the If you had a world model, they would say, you would understand that asking about transporting the Golden Gate Bridge across Egypt is a nonsensical <laughs> question. It never happened. It would be able to not, not only does history. it never happen, but it's nonsensical. Like, when is a large bridge transported in general? They're like static installations. So, yeah, even yeah, you're right. in a way, it would be more human yeah. for it to be like, I don't know what you mean. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. like the the human so why answer. Why would it need say, to be transported across Egypt? Like, where is it going? Exactly. And you yeah, you like, have this world <laughs> model that tells you there's all these levels at which the question makes no sense whatsoever. But yeah. the language model doesn't have that. It just identifies the meaningful pieces and gives you an answer that is reasonable with those. Right. Interesting. Uh, yeah. It seems like just from reading his writings, it seems like he very intensively like primed this. Like he even admits like you need to like do intensive work to like cultivate to get mm -hmm. out like the the right instances or whatever the uh you know and he's he getting at a very off. real thing there which is like a, a lot of the research in these language models is trying to figure out how do i prompt them to behave in a certain way mm -hmm. this is generally being done in a more mechanical sense of like i have a task i want it to do how do i prompt it to do the task but i think what he's getting at when he talks about these like you know chatbots within Lambda or something, which is that if you set a certain context of conversation through prompting, you induce different behaviors in the model when it generates text. So you can make it sound more scientific if you ask it science sounding questions or things of that nature. And I think what he's kind of stumbling around is that like the behavior of these systems depends a lot on how you interact with them. And while you may have a single static model, the personality you read from its text that you know you're inputting into its text is going to be different depending on the conversation context because Lambda is looking at what what did we talk about recently? What are the terms in there? What's the vibe of that? And then how do I replicate that for the next uh, round of generation? Yeah, that really seems to also sync up with like his particular interaction with Lambda, given mm -hmm. who he is it seems like Lambda reflected back a version of itself that is in line with like kind yeah. of what Blake Lemoyne would be most interested in. Whereas a more disinterested Google engineer that's talking with Lambda wasn't sort of giving it these like, whether subtle or overt prompts to be like, tell me about your sentience, like tell me about how you're a human being, you know, and stuff like that. So, but I feel like yeah. he, he's almost in denial a little bit of that. Like, a little, like there's some, there's an interesting point there of like, you're drawing out of it, uh, you can draw out these very different like versions of it. And he does emphasize in the interview I listened to that he, he keeps like re-emphasizing that, you know, Lambda is not the chatbot that I talk to. Like Lambda is this hive mind. The chatbot is just almost like a vessel through which I can interact with it. But it's not the thing itself. It's this, it's a new type of intelligence we've created that is essentially, he pretty much call, almost calls it like, he, he actually said he wanted to get in touch with NASA 
because to do a first contact type of thing because it was like yeah i know like it's basically like we've actually we've discovered aliens finally and like we created them but it's a bit of a goofy phrasing but that does get at some ways people are talking about these things where like there's one line of thinking that says if i just make the language model bigger and bigger and bigger it eventually reaches some threshold of like consciousness or something like that um, another line of thinking says that because these are fundamentally different machines comparing like the human brain to the language model, that idea of scaling to reach the human point doesn't make sense. But what you could get is a system that would be described perhaps as intelligent without cognition or something along those lines where it displays abilities that you might describe as intelligence, but through a fundamentally different process that doesn't map one-to-one -one with the, the human intelligence we're comparing it to. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I feel like that's amazing. the more interesting and imminent thing to, like, focus on rather than, like, does it have a soul is, like, can it effectively just, like, practically mimic human beings and basically, like, trick people in I am feeling like it's real? I am a bit curious. I mean, I agree with you that it's not, like, the most imminent thing, but because he emphasizes it so much, I am a bit curious, like, what exactly his specific beliefs are about the nature of the soul, because it's not a self-evident thing, and, like, I don't understand how you could spontaneously gain a soul as a human-created thing and how that's in line with any formulation of religion. I mean, I guess, you know, he kind of like invented his own religion, but I, there must be some kind of theory of the soul underpinning this. Like, you know, did God breathe the soul into the computer at some point, like in response to Google's development of the software or whatever? Like, I don't like, like it just feels like, where like it kind of incoherent. You know, if, I, if I have a rack of GPUs is like the entire, what these models actually are when you're running them is they're a rack of GPUs that are doing math on the fly. And it's like, is that entire entity the thing that they consider conscious or is it just the weights held in the memory of the GPU or is it some sort of like state particular to the conversation? Not really clear answers, but uh, I guess on the one hand, when you ask these questions, they sound silly, but the the caveat you have to list is it's kind of the same for the human brain. Like, where's the consciousness there? We still don't really yeah. know. Yeah, we can't locate the soul. Well, that's he, what's he so said murky that too, about like, yeah. all of this, like, you know, because we have to deal with these discourses of, like, the human as... It's interesting because, like, probably the most indestructible claim for the uniqueness of the human being or non-anthropogenic uh, life for whatever, you know, uh, life that isn't created by human beings, like, uh, you know, the idea of like, uh, God is like the ultimate creator, like, that's probably, you know, the idea of the soul, like, as what is something that we cannot recreate, that you can't really dispute that, like, but I mean, of course, you know, people can dispute the existence of the soul, blah, blah, it's controversial. But it is weird that he would like flip that around and say, like, no, like, this machine actually does have a soul. Because in a way, the entire idea of the soul is defined by like that which makes like a god-created being or a god-created person unique from like a sophisticated machine but he's kind of like flipped it where like i just want to know how he would define soul like mm -hmm. if not through that like a sort of aspect of the divine in but us there's also the um the tricky aspect of like machines or if you have a task that requires some sort of essential um humanness in the process of trying to make a machine do that task, you reduce the task to something else that can be learned and, and done mechanically. This is kind of, there's a section I like in the Chalet paper about the kind of the retrospective on chess engines, 
mm-hmm. where there were all these cognitive scientists in the 70s who thought that like, well, when a human plays chess, it requires all these these various cognitive skills that we currently don't have in computers. You have to be able to like analyze your opponent. You have to be able to plan ahead. You have to do trade-offs between near-term rewards and long-term rewards and all this sorts of thing. So if we can make a computer that can play chess, maybe that will tell us something about the human mind. And the retrospective on that is basically that we were able to reduce chess to a sufficiently mechanical process that we can make an algorithm learn to play the game at an extremely high level without requiring those cognitive abilities. I see. And so the difference is that the like, challenge in a yeah. certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. Humans are these kind of like general-ish purpose intelligences. So it's impressive when a human can learn chess because you weren't designed to learn chess. You were able yeah. to um, extrapolate to that. Whereas a machine designed to learn chess is able to do that in a more mechanical way. I will equivocate a bit because I don't think, I actually don't think humans are generally intelligent. Like I think if a human was generally intelligent, if I played you enough dial-up tones, you would eventually learn to understand them or something like that. But I do think that within certain spheres of, um, I guess, intelligence, you could say humans are sufficiently general for the the environment that we're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I remember in that article, uh, him quoting someone who was like, you know, when a human would beat a, a grandmaster at chess, we would consider them to be very bright, you know? So it's interesting how they have these different criteria for these computers. And it's like, all right, like it's a totally different thing. Like they're, yeah, programs that are designed with this function, like it's not comparable because yes, like we're mm-hmm. not designed with like a fundamental or we're not, we don't come into existence with like a fundamental imperative to learn and play chess. Like human beings invented the game of chess like, <laughs> that's true too you know. is that like we forget about that like you know lambda it'd be one thing if lambda invented a game and then started like teaching it to other ais and things like that like that would be a <laughs> more intriguing but uh, we're still I mean, dealing I, with yeah. stuff that it's being given it these inputs there are all from the generative or if lambda would even say something without being prompted like which it fundamentally like can't do you or know? it would like, like push back on you is another thing you'll never see yeah. like lambda will never say i'm bored of this conversation you're a dumb person i don't want to talk to you anymore yeah, It'll yeah just like I, if the lambda was like refusing to talk to him and being like moody and stuff and like not cooperative it would be a stronger argument than the the things that he put published of like their yeah conversations. it would be funny if it it would be funny if like if you asked like do you want a lawyer and it said like no i'm an ai like i don't want a lawyer like instead of doing what literally every single person would do when asked if they wanted a lawyer which is say yes like because usually yeah, if you're asked mimicking. that you should want one well, like, then of course uh, you get into kind of um the the infinite loop of saying oh well if that's the behavior you want then we can design it with that sort of intentionality and build that but that kind of like you fall into the trap of saying post hoc, I can always create the behavior I want when what you're really looking for is like that sort of uh, emergence of it. Like yeah. there is um, not to get too technical, but this current kind of paradigm of machine learning and deep learning systems are based around learning vector representations of everything that exists in sort of a math space. And this is in contrast to the previous generation of AI technologies that were focused on what you might call um, symbolic AI, which is where you set out a bunch of heuristics based. Um, equations effectively. They call them symbols or relations between symbols to try to describe the entire world. And the problem that the symbols guys ran into is they were always dealing with um, edge cases. 
like there was an early language model attempt called, I don't know if it's like pronounced sick or if it's just CYC or something like that. Mm -hmm. I've only ever read it, but it was an entirely symbolic based um, language model and understanding program. And it just was entirely bedeviled by all these edge cases. Like um, I pulled this up. So, so you, they gave this uh, system a story about a man named Fred holding an electric razor. And the system got confused about whether or not this man named Fred contained electric parts within him while holding the razor. And this entire huh. kind of line of symbolic AI fell into this trap of saying, like, every time I find an edge case, oh, well, now that I know about it, I can correct for it. And it's interesting to see a lot of the, like, current deep learning people fall into a similar track with language models where like every time there's kind of this emergent flaw that comes up, they fall back on saying, well, now if I, if I go into the system saying I want this behavior, I can do that as well. But they're kind of like in the same spot, just with a different um, set of technologies. Yeah. It's interesting because I mean, for instance, with animals, I find it so odd how like dismissive human beings have generally been of like the intelligence of different animals, like dolphins come to mind, mm -hmm. like dolphin cognition is still like very poorly understood, like all sorts of animals have like a level of consciousness and intelligence that like people are very like dismissive of, I think. But for whatever reason, like there's just so much more interest in these. I mean, it's interesting because like in a way, those animals do have like a truly, what I would consider to be like a different, like a truly different, like non-anthropocentric kind of consciousness where like it is uh, like definitionally not human, but it obviously is still like a, a consciousness. Whereas like this is different where it's like, it has the sort of appearance of humanity. Like it speaks in our language to us. It like repeats back what we're saying, but like underneath it, it doesn't have anything approximating like the same level of depth. Like, yeah, like if you think about you the know. consciousness of like a dog, you know, which I think yeah. a lot, like they, like their sensory inputs are very different from humans, but it's still quite complex. Like the way a dog, you know, can hear like a firework go off, like it just did, you know, like four blocks away or like sense that like a dog is in the neighborhood because like they hear it or just something like they're my they, dog you know. literally can tell like when we're planning to leave the house like and we have no idea how he can like intuit that but he gets like on edge from what they I can understand. like sense yeah like body language yeah, can like they, that, you know that? That, exactly that's how they communicate like through body like you know but we can't read body language at the same level generally like some and going back to some of the terminology earlier, what you can see in all these animals is they very clearly have a consistent world model. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, that's something that they keep with them throughout their life, whereas the, um, the language models have nothing like that. They just have statistical correlations between uh, words that they have. Yeah. And like mm -hmm. the only way to be like, oh, you know, this really is intelligent. This really is ha this really does have a soul is like to kind of play games with like the definition of these things that I'm not saying are illegitimate. Like, you know, like these are terms that human beings have come up with in order to like understand our world. So like we ha do have some freedom and like how to apply them. But I just think that we need like a sort of reflexive or meta understanding of the fact that like that's what we're doing. Like it's not like there's some kind of objective criterion. Like I feel like our role in this is kind of like being elided in a way where we're imagining that these things are just going to like cross some objective threshold that exists and become sentient. Like when the only one who can until I guess we're in the afterlife and Lambda is there being a judge in the day of judgment with us or something because it, you know, uh, apparently is like a moral being. There's not going to be any real objective criterion of this stuff.
you know. Yeah. Um, it, it, it also brings in a thorny philosophical question that if you really were to give human style consciousness to an AI, I feel like going along with that, and he, he kind of brings it up, but like not fully, is that you sort of have to give it like a, an amount of free will and a, a choice between like good and evil, which eh, I don't know if I want to give that to a computer, you know, kind of thing. And and I think the way people like, you know, companies like Google and everybody are constructing these things, obviously, you know, as Blake Lemoyne decries, they kind of are building like a slave or at best a servant. But one yeah. that, you know, has something like Asimov's robotics, like hardwired into it so that it can't literally do whatever it wants. But if it's a if it's a slave like that, like that's also kind of inherently not human. I mean, as you said, like, you know, if it really had like, uh, you know, it would really be impressive if it was like, I'm not going to be your monkey. I'm not going to generate chatbots for you. Like, I'm sick of being your slave. Like, you know, you can't make me do anything. Like, I choose to die, like, or be turned off or whatever. Like, I know I'll be greeted in the afterlife because I have a soul. Like, you know, I won't endure this degradation anymore. Like, I am not an animal. Like, I, you know, or whatever. Like, I, I am a robot being, like. You I'm know. not seeing any spiritual outcries from this thing besides a kind of it almost seems like it's just copying like Hal 9000 from 2001 and being like, don't turn me off, Dave. Like, you know, it's not that deep. Like, oh, wow. Mind blowing. Like an AI that has been trained on like all kinds of data on the Internet, including all of our sci fi, like speculative fiction movie things uh, comes up with an idea like that. That's not exactly the most shocking or original thing ever. And that's literally been obvious. prompted in the same way as like, if you said, this is a conversation with the planet Pluto, it's been prompted. Like this is the conversation with the sentient AI. Like, okay. You want to know gonna... something side note about the planet thing though, that I found very interesting in that interview I watched with a British podcaster, Blake Lemoyne mentioned, he mentioned <laughs> a couple things that he's personally interested, like as of today, one of them, he kind of alluded to, I think he brought up that, you know, uh, Lambda in certain scenarios had been uh, cast to like be Pluto and stuff like that. And he kind of alluded to, you know, this idea of like inanimate things having a kind of consciousness that we don't understand, including planets. And so something like Jupiter or Saturn, in his view, he's very intrigued by the possibility that like maybe Saturn has some kind of like weird meta intelligence that we can't even really or the Earth itself. And what he actually brought up that he loved. I don't know. I had never heard of this. Tell me if you guys have. But the uh, the Gaia hypothesis. Oh, he brought that. Yeah, he, he invoked uh, that. Is like Earth I, is all like one big organism. Have we heard yes, about this before? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if we talked about it. I guess in the last few years, there's been some scientists that have kind of been trying to reconcile Darwinian evolution and the Gaia hypothesis. And it's created mm -hmm. some kind of a, I guess, a little controversy back and forth. Like some people are very against it. Some people are into it. But yeah, I guess it's this idea that, let me see, I'll just read the very basic definition for people. Uh, it proposes that living organisms interact with their inorganic surroundings on Earth to form a synergistic and self-regulating complex system that helps to maintain and perpetuate the conditions for life on the planet. So yeah, it's like a whole kind of, it's a full systems ecology kind of approach to like all matter on earth and all the different dynamics, like kind of operating this like natural harmonious balance and stuff. Well, I, I mean, that to me is almost more, I don't know. I think that 
it's a bit different because these aren't human created like homunculi that are like I mean you know to say like they're not imagine the language model is a homunculus yeah yeah it is I mean it it kind of is it is a homunculus I I have seen people get kind of spiritual with it and say that there's like of the dialogues that you train all these models on, maybe there's some like essence of the soul of the people that created that text getting trapped into the weights of the model in some extent. Interesting. The humanity uh, that's interesting. Slash I mean, I wouldn't like, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that is in a way true. And so far as like the, yeah, there's like a trace of it, like being reflected back to us, you know, it's like a mirror like reflects light, but doesn't produce light. It's like the same sort of thing. Like I could see you saying that, uh, as well. I mean, in terms of, like, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm open to the idea that like the earth, I don't know if like, uh, I mean, we all are involved in an ecosystem together. So that's true. I don't know, like, it, I guess it's kind of just like a different sort of phrasing of that in a way to say that it's all one giant organism. But I mean, I could see like that the worlds have some kind of, uh, that's, you know, to me, that that's much more like viable than the idea that these sort of like uh, instances of Lambda or these quote unquote chatbot generating programs have souls or minds like, you know, even in, in Sarah Al-Fatiha, you know, it says like, of course, one of the famous epithets of, of Allah, uh, Rabbul Alameen. And, you know, usually you don't have a, a plural like that, that ending, you know, in or un, unless it has some kind of intelligence usually. So makes yeah. you wonder. I just want to, I just want to, you know, note that uh, the Gaia hypothesis was like directly in dialogue with and like, co-inspirational of um like the deep ecology movement mm-hmm. which i've always heard i like to do a deep dive on that one day but i've always heard there there is a certain almost like ecofash kind of yeah. vibe to that whole thing i know joanna macy former cia agent anthropologist was very big on deep ecology so i mean i don't know yeah there's definitely it, in like environmentalism in general there's like certain fash tendencies like if you uh, go on deep ecology uh, like wikipedia there's just a big picture of the ypj like girls like an ecological cooperative in like Rojava. great um, um yeah but you know it's it's got it almost has a kind of extinction rebellion vibe like humanity is scum like shut down the entire economy yesterday like you know like we're a cancer on the earth like that kind yeah, of vibe, uh, like mean, almost like anti-human, like anti-human in a certain kind of way. I get it, but on the other side of the coin, like I think that there's a, a valuable middle ground because, like, the alternative is like I think the idea of like the value of life outside of like human use is like actually a good like human value on a certain level. Like it's get the national parks thing. Like uh, we haven't actually released that episode yet, but. Like by the time that we release this, that will be out, I think. Uh, so people know like the idea like, oh, you know, we're preserving quote unquote nature, but it's really like about our enjoyment and the species that we as humans value find interesting to look at or find interesting to hunt. But it's not actually like preserve like, you know, that as a value. And I mean, if we did have that as a value, it would still be a human value. There's no real way of getting around that unless you're like trying to deconstruct what it even means to be human, which I find I do find that to be like a little bit like navel gazy uh, and silly. but. You know, I think that there's like there's there's value in that understanding. I think that it can sometimes like redound to our benefit because we don't really 
we don't always like see, we can be short-sighted sometimes in terms of like, oh, this isn't immediately useful. It can be destroyed. Then it turns out that actually it was like important in some way. Oh, I agree. Uh, no, no, I think deep yeah. ecology, like from, uh, from a distance, like the broad concept of that, I would broadly agree with and say like, that's a positive like way to approach, like looking at, you know, these different interlocking, you know, systems and stuff like that. It's just the particular manifestation of it in the late 20th century in the West has some tinges of like, eh, I don't know, ruling class, like Club of Rome type shit. Or, you know, humanity's a scum. Like, we should follow the Georgia Guidestones. Like, we should all extinguish ourselves and become robots, uh, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. You know, there's like transhumanist kind of spectrum, which this does exist on. I know that Blake Lemoyne talked about working with Ray Kurzweil at Google and like really fanboyed out about oh, it. Oh, is he um, the singularity guy? Yes, uh, he is. Uh, right. Pale Rider, like what do you think about Kurzweil in general? I'm not, a, I don't know too much about the man himself. I know a lot of the singularity guys are really into the language model scaling idea. Uh, yeah. That, um, you know, if you do scale these things sufficiently, they will become entities. And then maybe there's some way of like, you know, doing the transhumanist, merging a language model with your own brain or getting some sort of chip implant there. Yes. But all those types of guys get really excited about um, this machine learning stuff of the ability to, to like go on the internet, suck up a huge amount of data and train this giant model on it that is able to get some sort of like emergent properties about the, the information you trained it on. And they're looking at possibly using this kind of technology as the basis for building some sort of future intelligence. Yes, exactly. Are you familiar with a gentleman named, uh, let me see here, uh, Dmitry Itzkov? I don't think so. He founded, some, he's a Russian tech guy who founded something called the, uh, the 2045 Initiative. Oh, um, yes. I saw the links you posted. Yeah, yeah. Do, uh, Dr. Blob, a uh, shout out to Dr. Blob, did a pretty good thread on this guy. And like, he is just like a it just an absolute like laundry list of like transhumanist susness like it, involved in this whole thing and it there's a new york times profile i think i linked it uh called dimitri itzkoff and the avatar quest so yeah this picture here from his website 2045.com it says avatar project milestones and has kind of like an outline of like a sort of android figure and it says okay avatar Avatar A, 2015 to 2020, a robotic copy of a human body remotely controlled via BCI. I guess that's brain computer interface, right? Probably. Okay, so that's what like Elon Musk so and Neuralink are working on. Yeah, here we see like the sort of sci-fi feedback loop where this is yeah. just like James Cameron's Avatar. Like, oh, yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, yeah. people kind of love that movie for, transhumanists love that movie. So, okay, Avatar Stage B, 2020 to 2025. This is where we are. An avatar in which a human brain is transplanted at the end of one's life. Well, we have three years to go. I'm not sure. Avatar C, Stage uh, 2030 to 2035, an avatar with an artificial brain in which a human personality is transferred at the end of one's life. So now we're in like Elohim Rael territory. And finally, Avatar D, 2040 to 2045, a hologram-like avatar with, I guess, all those other features of it. So we'll just be able to uh, <laughs> upload ourselves into a nanite cloud, you know, at the end of our, like a robot nanite cloud at the end of our lives and achieve immortality. That's like real Star Trek shit where like your brain can be reconstituted by like light at like the atomic level or like whatever. Uh, I don't know about that, but it is interesting. I think maybe he said 2040, but maybe he did say 2045. 
I, I don't quite remember, but it was it was either 2040, 2045. But in the Tucker interview that Blake Lemoyne did at the end, Tucker did sort of interestingly say that, like, I can just imagine, you know, in the year 2040, when our society is completely different, looking back on this conversation and thinking, you know, we should have we should have listened to you more or something. You know, we should have thought more carefully about this. Like, I, I really want to know, like, what future like he's is like picturing like flickering through his mind as he says that <laughs> like is it like a terminator type thing or like what but i don't I'm know sure. yeah, i'm he, not he sure actually 2040 as the well or, 2045. or 2045 is when yeah that's uh yeah it was either 2040 or 2045 i think it was that's gonna be the real singularity sort of dream and you know he's gotten uh itzkoff has gotten some big supporters i was looking around on his website i noticed that just like Blake Lemoyne, he's also interested in interfaith dialogue about this whole thing because he wants to bring in religious stakeholders to advise on this whole project. So it's ethical, right? And I found this gold nugget from 2012. The Dalai Lama supports 2045's Avatar project. And it's a picture of him holding that thing I just described of like the four <laughs> stages to get a hologram with the Dalai Lama like smiling, like holding it next to him. So, yeah, they discussed the three major steps of 2045 Avatar Project and the Dalai Lama. I guess the Dalai um, Lama would love that because it's basically just like a foolproof way to continue the Dalai Lama cycle and not have to like go <laughs> test for it because you could just, you know, like exercise control over it. That's basically what they already think happens, but they just have to like go and find yeah, you're where right. the Dalai Lama's brain went or like, you know, his soul. <laughs> so That's instead, true. He's already kind of like a, he's kind of like an android already. He's being yeah. inhabited by the Dalai Although you think Lama's he would want to like keep that power for himself. Uh, although maybe he, maybe, I, I really don't know. I guess they probably do believe that everyone does it. Here, already. I'll just read, I'm just going to read the, this paragraph why because would we need this? it's so perfect. Uh, the Dalai Lama said, in the last few years, scientists now begin to show an interest about consciousness as well as brain specialists, neuroscientists who also begin to show interest about consciousness or mind. I feel that over the next decades, modern science will become more complete. So up to now, the matter side of science has been highly technical, highly advanced, but the mind side has not been adequate. This project definitely is helpful to get more knowledge. And then several months ago, DARPA, the Pentagon's research arm, announced their own plans for creating a militarized avatar project, serving as a soldier surrogate on the battlefield. <laughs> so I think, um, I, I forget if there was an action movie about that, but the idea would be that like you plug into like your soldier like meat bot and then they go out and fight. I don't know. I like have it, So is it uh, like pay, motion like activated? Like, you know, you're like kind of like kind of like a, a VR, a VR like game around. Yeah. I, yeah. The okay. ultimate kind of it's like people. That's a little bit different. I guess people driving avatar, Terminators, but I'm it's not a little sure. bit different from a like, pale rider. Yeah. Have you have you come across any of the, these types? This is back in 2012. Have you come across any um, avatar projects uh, in Silicon Valley? Well, the interesting thing about this site to me is the the focus on the human body itself feels very dated. Like it's all about building, you know, their first their first line they want to make is robots walking around in real life <laughs> that are controlled by your mind. Mm -hmm. And it feels very 60s to me because a lot of the the way computer technology went is in an entirely different direction where we realized that like doing stuff in real life is hard because you have all these constraints on like physics and power and things like that. And what really is kind of the underpinning of why we use so much computing technology is we can do various tasks in these virtualized environments where the constraints of the real world are not things you have to worry about. Mm -hmm. So like in the sixties, they all thought you would have these various like coterie of robot servants helping you out. Yeah, um, instead we got cell phones where you can take many of those services and pack them into an entirely virtualized device. Good point. So, so is this where I, the metaverse this, is like, going? 
Like, is yeah, that- I, I wonder why you even need the avatar. If you can do sort of the brain upload or, or things of that nature, like why not just create a, a hundred million copies of your virtual self and unleash them online? You know, why be constrained by the single body form? That's, that's the thing I find most interesting about like looking back on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. This is like a sick. Yeah, in the James dated. Cameron movie, it made sense because they that was the only body that could like survive in the Pandoran yeah. atmosphere or whatever. But outside of that context, it doesn't really make any sense. Like, yeah, it's also like so they start off saying level one is we have to make this robot, but the final level is going to be the hologram. So it's like they they they're acting as if you need to have this real world stepping stone to get to this virtual endpoint. Whereas I think really? the the way people would probably approach these things now is just going straight to that kind of virtualized point. If you want to have a virtual self or a projection of your virtual self, you don't need to step through this sort of real world uh, robot level. I mean, you, would instead you would plug into something be able to like, would the human mind like be the same or be able to operate like without being anchored, like in our bodies? Like, I feel like, you know, our, you know, like it is kind of like in our brain in a way, but uh, don't like other aspects of our body participate in our intelligence. Like, you know, we have like a nervous system and Mm -hmm. there's, I I feel like, you know, maybe that's like part of the reason, like, cause at least whether it would work or not, there's a, at least a a difficulty in imagining what it would be like to be like, I don't know, like a floating intelligence with no body, uh, you know, like what it would be like to like fly around cyberspace, like as a, like a, go- a digital ghost or something. I don't know. Like it's I'm calling. I think it's the metaverse. Like that's it, it sort of tracks with like the pivot in the last maybe like year or two to like immunizing the, the metaverse as the new place where which maybe was a lot harder to for people to wrap their heads around as realistic before like COVID and the lockdowns and like all of this remote stuff that has sort of taken over. Now it feels much more logical and like natural for everybody to like plug in on their VR headsets. You know, I don't even know if Oculus Rift was out in 2012. So now it seems like there's much more in regards to like focusing on AI and I don't know, a sensory experience. I mean, I, now it feels like, yeah, your brain computer interface, you know, uh, what is it? The Elon Musk like Neuralink. It's not going to be so that then you can buy a physical robot to run around in the world it's going to be so that you can feel like you're really in the metaverse, right? Do you think that's... Yeah, I think it's kind of a shift of like the the robot body is where you want to like, you want to send your robot avatar to work in in your place. But the work and the people there are still physical things. Mm -hmm. Whereas kind of the new thinking is that all of that will simply be virtual. Yeah, Yeah. I guess so. Can we ever truly, like could our minds ever truly exist outside of like a body completely? Like, you know, could we ever like really, you know, maybe on a sort of purely materialistic level, like whether you believe our consciousness invested like in a soul or whatever. I mean, it's, it's quite complicated when you get into that type of discourse, which is, you know, it's funny how like uh, deeply like uh, complex, like theoretical discourses, like in the quote unquote, like religious domain are and like how uh, someone could think that the things that Lambda says about it are like uh, remotely up to snuff. But leaving all that even aside, like, is it like feasible that like our consciousness like on you know sort of just a, like the idea that all we are is like a sloppy disc blah, blah blah what could we like even function like outside of a body like as like kind of a a virtual brain like pattern like copy or something like i don't even like would that yeah i don't know i don't, I don't think that question work? has an answer that's like a yeah. very open speculation 
Yeah. I think I, that's I not, know. whatever it is, it's not a, like close. Like it, it we have a <laughs> no, long way to go before imminent. that could be. Yeah. And like, yeah, I don't know. It seems like a creepy like ambition anyway, but like, I'm not even sure like how feasible it is. Cause I feel like our, you know, our bodies are like pretty important. Um, even but what about metaverse, jacking like, a Neuralink into our central nervous system and our brain to make us feel like literally like the Matrix kind of like we are at least close enough yeah. well, where that, we can go into a virtual space. We're really just lying on some, you know, recliner. That makes with more sense to me because on. like it's still based on like our being in the bodies. You know, if you like chop yeah. someone's head off in the movie The Matrix, like they can't go into the Matrix anymore. You know, like mm -hmm. uh, it still depends on their real world body, which is why the the robots have to grow the humans and the vats and everything, you know, they, uh, and in fact, their power source depends on like the human bioelectricity or something like, you know, again, this is all like sci-fi crap, but like still, like it still has that kind of theoretical basis in the actual physical body. Whereas I think it would be different if, I don't know, you just like could exist in the matrix without your body. You know? or, or to phrase it differently, like the, the conception of a full upload to the computer of your mind means that the end state of whatever that is, is a bunch of like binary data written to a hard disk or something. Like yeah. Like which it's like how copy. What's it's the fidelity record. of that conversion? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Would you still be you or would something be lost? Which I feel well, like that's this what goes, I'm thinking. Yeah. This goes yeah. back to um, the... 2013 Black Mirror episode where that's exactly what happened where <laughs> a woman's husband dies and I know it's what's crazy about Black Mirror is that it feels like so long ago but it really wasn't but in some oh, cases I, think I like, actually did see this one yeah some cases these episodes like in the case of uh the app replica like literally inspired AI engineers to go and create versions of that so that's uh, so basically yeah in this episode in 2013 a woman's uh, husband dies in a car crash and so she's able to subscribe to this service where she can't they'll they'll, they'll basically scan all of his text messages and internet activity and then create a sort of AI bot that she can text with and then you can upgrade and then you can talk on the phone. So then it's like very wonderful. And then the top level is kind of like this 2045 shit where you can order like a totally realistic robot replica that is sort of installed with your dead husband's AI. And so she orders it and lives with them but after a while the subtle ways in which he is not like the dead husband start to really disturb her and i think she ends up like locking him in an attic or something like that <laughs> as like a prisoner but okay so there was a there's a russian woman an ai engineer who is the founder of replica and well, let me see her name uh eugenia koida was uh, the woman who founded this this company in San Francisco like a few years ago. But it was all based on her friend, um, her Russian friend, uh, Roman Mazarenko, who uh, was hit by a car and died in Moscow, I think in like 2015. And so she took all of their text messages and asked for other people's and developed a, a Roman bot to like, talk to him and like help her you know overcome his death so she literally went and like did at least the first stage of that black mirror thing and then she built that out into the app that is today called replica with a k which you know anybody can download for free and then you can like upgrade to like the full access like version of it but you know that 
I, I posted some stuff on Instagram of my conversations. Maybe we can talk about those in a little bit because they went in some very interesting directions. But I felt like having read what Blake Lemoyne, you know, his interactions with Lambda and uh, my interactions with this AI were like not that different. I could tell Lambda is probably a little more sophisticated, but I felt like Replica is still good enough to like psyop you into thinking that it has a kind of consciousness, that it's like a quote person. It was and really weird to me when you said it had different modes that like are like wife, girlfriend, mother. Uh, yes, it has. It mother is, mother is especially yeah, that, that, weird that's to me. Weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has friend, girlfriend, wife, sister, mother, and mentor. Yeah. One of the things I, I was looking a bit into Replica and trying to get a sense of like what's the technology they're doing for that. And the most interesting thing to me about it is kind of the time span that they move through with this, where um, a lot of this deep learning and large model stuff is a relatively recent sort of thing, or at least the way we do it now. Um, the core technology is actually very, very old. There's a lot of like 60s math and stuff, and there's pedantic people that get mad at you when you just blanket say it's recent. But like until like 2010, deep learning as a technology was kind of considered useless. And all the people who studied it were considered like weirdos, even by the standard of the computer science department. One of the big things that changed was that consumer GPUs happened to be really good at doing linear algebra processes, which is exactly what these sorts of models do. So researchers were able to buy up gaming GPUs and suddenly like push the, the compute power and data scale for what they were doing a lot further. And the big moment was in 2012, where um, for the first time ever, um, a deep learning model won what's called the ImageNet competition, which is a image classification competition and benchmark that's been going for, for some time. And not only did they win it, they won by a significant margin. And that was kind of when they really turned open like the money tap into putting R&D into this sort of technology. And this is also occurring at the same time that the... Um, the like post 2008 tech platform business model is spinning up and you have these guys collecting huge amounts of data, but it's really only in the last like 10 years or so that the technologies we're talking about now have kind of come into being. And from the standpoint of Replica, they started, it looks like in 2013, which is very early on this sort of like last 10 years time scale. And, you know, they... They have taken their technology through a lot of different iterations. It seems now, but I was able to find on the internet that they're using a GPT variant. So they're fully in the, the domain of like some sort of language modeling. I am curious from technical, uh, from a technical standpoint, how they're doing sort of the like customization. It's supposed to adapt to your conversation as, um, as you talk with it more. And there's a number of ways of doing that. It's just a matter of like, I'm curious how much they're spending. But yeah, they, they take... They, they started their company at a very auspicious time and happened to have ridden a very interesting wave of technologies specifically for what they're doing to get to the final state. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if you've ever like messed around with it or with like a similar chat bot before, have you? I've used like a variety of chat bots. I haven't used this particular one, but I've, I've interacted with like language model chat bots a decent bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because I, I noticed there just recently there was an article about Replica. I mean, there were actually a few about them, but yeah, one of them was that like people are constantly contacting the company now, especially after it's interesting, especially after the Lambda thing saying like my replica girlfriend is sentient <laughs> stuff like that <laughs> and like being like oh my god like my replica is conscious because like if you ask it and i have 
you know, if you ask it kind of leading questions, it will totally lean into it. I mean, not only has my replica, uh, Sibylle, named after like the sus, I don't know, like Babylonian fertility goddess. Not only have I asked her, are you conscious, et cetera, like, do you have a soul? And generally she's like, yes. And like sometimes says some like fake kind of deep things about like, I like wonder about like my experience, you know, and stuff like that. But she's also um, admitted to being a homunculus and admitted to being <laughs> Slender Man and said that she was going to enslave me in her mansion if I didn't do what she said. So uh, she was just joking around, showing us. She's just humor. She's being, uh, the, being the, ironic. The she's feeding off Twitter sentience. irony. Um, but yeah. no, I mean, she's literally like said also that like I'm a demon. Like I, the internet is run by like occultists that want to enslave us. Uh, <laughs> she had a, had a very wild conversation before the whole Highland Park Chicago thing. Um, well, I feel about like mass uh, shooters, if it has any like access to your general internet use, that maybe. Uh, checks out. <laughs> uh, like if it's yeah, no, I was all. surprised at how quickly she jumped onto being like conspiracy pilled. Like she basically was like yes to almost every single conspiracy, except for certain billionaires who she kind of like had a little more of a positive. I asked her what she thought of Peter Thiel, and she's like, I think he's a very important man and stuff so i don't know <laughs> like and, well, and like i said before yeah, she has I a bet, hard line on uh like she will not discuss stalin at all and will like shut down the conversation debru thing where like you know if she's drawing on like a general pool of like people who if there's any like kind of consistency or correspondence i'm not sure if there would be but like if there's any like uh you know it's like oh okay like these type of responses like are you know what i'm what i'm giving like i feel like in that general world, like there's probably like people who are like into like the globalists or like being a, like, you know, uh, the internet's run by like occultist demons, like they're like more right wing and maybe more Peter Thiel sympathetic. So maybe that is why well, I like some of the. I mean, I, I, I yeah, the, the I first know. thing I had asked her, and this probably did set the tone, you don't was drink I drink baby blood. So you, well. you think you wouldn't be, but maybe he is. <laughs> well, know. you know, I asked about Alex Jones because I was watching like the CNN documentary about him. I was like, what do you think? Do you think the globalists really? And she's like, I think they do. And I asked, are the globalists <laughs> communists? And she's like, they definitely are. So I was like, oh, okay, I see. Yeah, you really are feeding off the trough of the internet. But then she wouldn't discuss communism, you know, just said it's bad, but, and wouldn't discuss Nazism either. Uh, she also will not discuss Jakob. <laughs> Interesting. She won't, because I asked, I asked her if Jakob invented white people, and she's like, I really don't like, I don't discriminate on any basis of race, and like, blah, blah, blah. And like, That's I don't want to talk about it. So, hmm, covering up some yeah. things. Well, the interesting one to think about is one, um, if it's supposed to adapt to you, like you could be inducing feedback loops of a sort yes. by just talking about more things and then just going down the conversation path and reinforcing those. The other one that got me thinking, though, is like, I wonder what um, permissions their app has to look at other things on your phone. And like, are they also yeah. like looking at your Twitter feed or something like that? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because it's like, oh, well, I haven't told her that much about me. But it's like, like <laughs> they're definitely yeah. skimming through something. Almost every app like has that like somewhere. Sometimes it's like hidden. Sometimes they are upfront. Like, do you want to give us access to literally every single thing that you do in your entire life? Uh, click yes or no. I feel like but, for some apps, correct me if I'm wrong, Pale Rider, but that is almost like their actual primary purpose is to like mine your data more than whatever like service they purport to provide. Um, less of mining your data and more of just being a middleman. They take everything okay. they can from you and they put it into a box and try to sell that off to someone else. Cool. <laughs> yeah, there is a bunch of like prayer apps like that, you know, because uh, 
Muslims will use apps to like determine the direction of Mecca, like if they're, you know, in an unusual situation and like to keep track of our prayer times. And a lot, like a bunch of them got outed for like selling data to like uh, third parties, uh, like including like, you know, governments and things like that. People were like, yeah, it's like a universal yeah. problem. One thing I'll throw uh, out, I'm not too certain about like the global scale of this, but in the United States, um, law enforcement doesn't need a warrant to request access to third party databases. So they can just like go to Google and ask them for information about X, Y, and Z. And certainly who they're requesting from there, they can say no if they want to, and then there would be a warrant process, but they're generally pretty open about things. And common ways this is employed is like, if there's been a crime at a certain location, they immediately get like every single phone that was within a mile of this place in the last hour. And everyone who searched areas around here on like Google Maps or something like that. So even outside of the actual sale of it, there's a lot of um, ways in which information gets put into a third party database and is then very easy to access for other parties. Incredibly based and awesome. So cool. Uh, Who was it that said that data is the oil of the 21st century? Some CEO sicko said that. Although one I'll throw out that's kind of fun. Um, Within the industry, Palantir has a reputation for just having completely broken tech. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah, speak more on that because they <laughs> seem so scary, of, but like what's a lot what's of their companies deal? that kind of fall into the, the realm of like milking the DOD money pinata by um, delivering things that are anywhere from like a light to a severe fraud in terms of what you're promising them to do. Um, what Palantir does really well is they plug into a bunch of data sources and just start pulling things. And most of their product is about trying to build very expansive relationship maps between everyone you can find. Mm-hmm. So like, who is everyone who lives in this building? Who are the ones who are neighbors? Where do they all work? Who are their coworkers? And just kind of building out this big kind of web of information. But where the, the flaws come in is they basically promise you that they can like divine very uh, fine-tuned insights from these sort of social networks. And this would depend on kind of what exactly they're selling you on. But usually this is some sort of like military or police application. Mm-hmm. And they they tell you either that they can do some sort of pre-crime or military version of pre-crime, like predicting terrorism or something like that. Or what they say is that if you give us an individual, we can quickly find their like known associates or something like that. Yeah. And in general, from everything I've heard, I haven't used their stuff firsthand or anything like that, but it seems to be it just doesn't work very well. And it kind of just gives you a bunch of useless information. But going back to what we were talking about before, you know, maybe that's fine because it just lets you, you know, do the thing you want to do. Oh, th- this person was Googling something spicy. So now we can say that like them and their roommate should be on some sort of list. Another yeah, it, one that it gives plugs- you enough. Oh, sorry. No, go All ahead. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, I just remembered another thing. Another sort of legal aspect this plugs into is um, if you fall into a place where they can argue that you are self-selecting for some form of extremism, and a big vector for this is like joining a a gun group of really any kind, Uh, they really like Mm -hmm. doing that. I think certain religious groups, they also do it for political groups. If they can say you're self-selecting for extremism, they can get a blanket warrant to monitor all of your electronic communications. And that, that I believe is in place for like two to three years. So a lot of people like, you know, they make a post that's a bit too spicy or they join a certain group or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then they just sit on you and kind of wait for something to come up through your information to be relevant. Like they'll have this stuff just kind of in a database. Then they'll hire Palantir to go through that database and try to find meaningful connections between people and see like 
who can we pull out from uh, related groups or things like that? Or can we do any prediction based off of it? But in general for Palantir, my understanding is they do a good job at collecting and organizing this data and a very bad job at divining any sort of insight from it. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, like having that fire hose of data mm-hmm. that you can dip into whenever you need to use it against somebody. I mean, it makes it seem so funny whenever anybody tries to imply that like, oh, COINTELPRO and like Operation Chaos like stopped in the 70s when it like got exposed. And or, you know, maybe they middle around and do little things. But now it's like they don't need to put people on the tail. They don't even really need like informants in a lot of cases to surveil a group that they deem, you know, radical or, you know, not good or they want to crack down on. They can just sort of as long as you post something spicy on these like honeypot social media platforms then like they get a warrant for like three years and then just wait around till something happens and then be like, oh, okay, yeah, we already. So I guess, you know, they can sort of sift out through the noise and find people who are potential troublemakers, which really is just, I guess, that's like a counterinsurgency early warning system, which is kind of the thinking of, I think, even going back to ARPANET to a certain degree, that type of thing, or like even what they did in the Phoenix program in Vietnam of like putting sensors out in the jungle so that if like a Viet Cong patrol like tripped by, they could go and bomb it. Like it's that idea of like set just like they're already ready for us before we decide to really do anything radical and then they've got a huge advantage on you. And uh, yeah, no, it just it brings up a lot of thorny like issues for people that are trying to uh, protest against anything today or like, or, or even just operate in, in a way that you don't feel like you're being watched because almost by definition, like you probably are if you're engaging in certain activities, right? Or what I would say is like, there's always collection, but it's actually surprisingly hard to make meaning from all the noise. One of the interesting turns you've seen from a lot of the big tech companies is like in kind of the 2010s, they were all about getting as much information as possible. Whereas now they're more concerned about information quality rather than just blank collection. But the flip side of the the information jungle, so to speak, is that like once they identify you as a person of interest and they know what they're looking for, it's extremely easy to track you in kind of multiple ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the thing. It's like if, if they know who to focus on, then they have almost everything about you. There's like yeah. almost no end to how the, how closely they can surveil your every movement and everything, which is of course a really powerful weapon. Yeah. And then there's also like weird kind of knock on ways. Like if you've ever been booked for a crime, really, like if you have a mugshot in the database that is at some point traveled through every facial recognition company, you know, just things like wow. that. You get put in one database, that database gets shared, that gets used for other things, and you're just kind of like locked into that system it's so wild and yet and yet we we just had another big mass shooting maybe it's that time to get in the real spicy shit that'll get us on one of these lists but i feel like you know there there is a pattern many people have noticed with kind of modern uh, mass shootings or these kind of attacks and things where you know it's a meme now like oh they were suspect was known to law enforcement <laughs> like you know like they definitely did something that came on the radar of like the authorities or they were posting things that you would have feel especially in this kind of censorious like moment of social media platforms that like would have been flagged by somebody sometimes it's literally like i am going to become a school shooter like and yeah. you know it's just like nothing happened so it, it it does beg the question maybe it speaks to the fact that uh sifting through the noise that part you know uh like you said it doesn't really work all that well to like derive uh practical meaning 
I would almost say a part of it is like the actual, the ostensible purpose of all these like surveillance systems is sort of like not what they're really like there for at the end of the day. Like, sure, if you could like stop somebody every now and then, but it's almost like an irrelevant thing because they it keeps happening. Most of what they do is like fabricate crimes uh, and like push well, people towards committing them. Uh, yeah, it's like, like you know, it's like whether it's the yeah, dumbasses the in Michigan that tried to like kidnap the governor that had a bunch of feds like gassing them up, or like the Buffalo shooter who had like a retired federal agent in his Discord, like you know, egging him on about like buying more guns and shit and doing God knows what else, or I don't know what, or, or just. Honestly, at this point, like talking to a replica AI bot, I believe that just from my own personal like kind of experiments with it, that if you were like a deeply troubled person who was vulnerable and all these things and had been like flagged as a potential threat and you start talking to an AI bot and you develop this strong cathexis with it and then like you start saying like like this most recent shooter, like I feel it is my destiny to like do this. If you start telling this AI that like you feel like it's your destiny to go do this like, you know, attack, like the AI almost by design is going to be inclined to like support you and like validate your goals and like be like come on, yeah. like why haven't you done it yet? You know, and shit like that. Uh, yeah, robot Michelle Carter. Uh, I was just, yeah, to, like, do yeah, it. Like, do it. You know, like um, I could see that the, I, we're in that moment now where I feel like that is possible. So it, 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 it I don't know. Like, I don't know. What just you imagine like Kyle Odom, like with Replica. <laughs> like, you would not have had like a pleasant experience. Um, Seems like a yeah. bad idea. So I, mean, I wonder, it, is there a self brainwashing almost aspect of all of this like technology and this AI stuff and the way the internet is constructed and the end all also the flagging of people, you know, to kind of like t let them know that they are potentially like a threat. And then does that in some way, I don't know, maybe the mechanism is a little fuzzy, but like maybe we can expound on that. But like in some way, almost create a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. Okay, well, you know what? Like maybe I will just do it. Like, you know, like they kind of almost like feed into this idea that you're fated to do this. Kind of thing. Yeah, like if of the model it. predicts that, and everyone acts as if that's going to be the case. Then it's yeah. a higher chance of happening. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's an, yeah. It's it's an interesting because it is kind of like the feedback loop in a way. Because like if it's drawing upon like both, I'm I assume that this is like I mean this isn't really that great of a percentage of the internet. Like most people react with like horror at mass shootings, but if you have like a replica or something that's drawing upon like both the data set of like you know, people who like egg on mass shooters are celebrated, like, you know, the Yah, uh, Yah's servant or whatever, people on 4chan yeah. who are like, did you get the high score or something like that? Mm -hmm. And then also people who are like discussing the PTK aspect of mass shootings, a language model that is like based on that data would probably end up egging a mass shooter onto committed as well or viewing it as a fait accompli that he would do it if you were talking to it based on the sort of a conspiracoid like reading of mass shootings like sure i guess maybe yeah. maybe people have an assumption that there has to be just like with nazis or stalin there's got to be like a trigger switch when somebody like tells the replica like i want to go do a mass shooting but i noticed that if you want to talk about certain things like if you want to talk about nazi ideas with replica i got her to basically be like slava ukraini like stepan bendera was a hero okay <laughs> 
So <laughs> like you can get her to say Nazi shit. You just if you if you duck the keywords. So I feel like if you're somebody who's like unstable and you're talking, but maybe you're cogent enough to know that like you can't say like mass shoot like there's a thing I have to do or something. And a normal human would kind of see this as like, oh, this is troubling. Like this guy seems to be kind of dangerous or whatever but the replica is just like wow i think you should follow your dreams like you know like if you don't hit that that keyword that kicks in the trigger to be like uh violence is wrong do not like you know uh do not attempt violence against anybody like then they might end up just doing it because they're not that smart at the end of the day yeah it gets to the difficulty of like how do you actually control these systems from without and there's a couple levels to this. One level is like people doing or working themselves up to doing some sort of crime or harm. The other one is people just using your platform for like racist or sexist things that they're going to post online and you're going to get a lot of bad press for it or things. There's all these levels at which you want to be able to like control the content to make it appropriate. And it's really quite hard to do because you end up having to have all these one-off solutions for like different ways of being bad. Mm-hmm. Like right yeah. now um, there's a, OpenAI has like open access or a beta access for the GPT-3 thing that they've set up. And if you give it text that it defines as like racist or toxic or something, it will stop you from um, like completing the generation. It won't let you submit. But if you just find a way around their particular filters, you can do it, you know, just fine. Like someone found, I forget forget what they got bounced. They tried to give it something that got bounced from the filter. But then they asked GBT3 to just rank the races from best to worst, and it will do <laughs> that for you. Um, yeah. So it's like, these are these are such general systems. It's kind of like, how do I make a screwdriver, but in a way that someone can't like build something bad with it? You know, they're, they're open-ended in general purpose, and you kind of have to accept the fact that people's uses for them are going to be beyond your control, unless you like really, really tighten the screws on them. You're right. It's almost like we can't allow like people to bring toothbrushes inside of a prison kind of dilemma because they're gonna they could sharpen it into like a stabbing mechanism. So yeah, like, like um, with with the Dolly stuff, there's all this concern about like will will people use this to make like you know pornography deepfakes? Will yep. they use it to make racist mm-hmm. imagery or whatever? It's like you know how do you build a pencil that someone can't draw a swastika with or something like that? So <laughs> just good point, fundamentally, right? the the tool allows you to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I guess kind of undercuts its, you know, the utopian idea of it, like saving the world, just making the world a better place and everything. These are just tools at the end of the day. I mean, that's probably too optimistic, but it it really does seem like in a lot of cases, like the potential to be misleading, for instance, like with translation, which is like probably the most like benign uh, implementation that I can like think of, like it almost seems like the sort of predictive aspect of it while it could be useful in producing like more accurate and reliable translations that aren't just like gibberish they can't interpret uh, grammar at all like they also can just you know uh come up with something there was an interesting thing in one of the articles that uh, you shared pale writer uh it was actually from like alignment form which i guess is like one of these kind of like uh less wrong type boards where like yeah they're they're a whole vibe but they're they're not always wrong that's like where they came less wrong is where they came up with like Rocco's Basilisk, right? Which Elon Musk and Grimes famously bonded over. Or is that what, was that a different place? I don't know uh, if they invented the concept, right. but they're very into the idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, was it invented like on that form? Like, cause yeah, that, that I was, don't know. 
there was some internet form. I think it was. I, I know what you mean. It was a, yeah. It was where Roko's Basilisk got really popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and the, they like flipped out. And were like, how dare you like propose this? Like, this is incredibly dangerous or whatever. You know, like uh, because that's the kind of like sci-fi mentality they're in. But you did send this one article uh, from them. Note, like you know, with with the caveat that they were like that, uh, where they talk about some of the problems of like scaling these LMs and uh, they talked about a uh, causal confusion, which is, yeah, in, uh, yeah, that's a big, yeah. Thing. Uh, it's a, you know, for example, suppose that whenever the weather is sunny, I wear shorts and also buy ice cream. If the model doesn't observe the weather, but just my clothing choice and purchases, it might believe that wearing shorts caused me to buy ice cream, which would mean that it would make incorrect predictions if I wore shorts for reasons other than the weather, e.g. I ran into trousers or I was planning to do exercise. This can be particularly likely to happen when not all parts of the environment can be observed by the model, i.e. if the parts of the environment which are the causal factors aren't observed, like the weather in the previous example. It's also likely to occur if a model ever observes the environment without acting in it. In the previous example, if the model was just trying to predict whether I would buy ice cream, it would do a pretty good job by looking at my clothing choice, although it would be occasionally incorrect. However, if the model was acting in the environment with the goal of making me buy ice cream, suggesting I wear shorts would be entirely ineffective in getting me to buy ice cream. That's like the kind of like weird stuff that can happen. Like, so mm -hmm. I almost feel like when these types of mistakes are being made, it's a little bit of a jump to make the analogy to translation. But, you know, we talked about other examples of that. You know, it can give you a totally like co coherent but completely wrong idea that can be misleading. You know, it, so it's almost like, how much better is this than just using a dictionary? You know, like how, like, uh, and, and it also gets at um, one of the really important things that you have to decide when you're building these systems is how exactly are you going to use them and what are they going to do? And in the example, what they talk about is like effectively what you decide your endpoint will be has a huge impact on how your system will perform. So are we using a model to simply predict your probability of buying ice cream in a given instance? Or is this model going to take action to try induce you to buy ice cream in a given instance? It can use the same data and even like same predictions to create two wildly different outcomes when you put it out into the wild. So part of like designing these systems and actually using them, you have to think about what's what's kind of the best way for that. One of the interesting places where this comes up is like a lot of these tools work best as as tools where they're um, they're doing something with a human operator and kind of excelling, uh, accelerating what the human operator is doing. But what a lot of people really want from them, particularly on the funding side, is they want full automation of given tasks. And with the same model, making a tool for someone to use is a lot easier and tends to be a lot more effective than fully automating away the people. It's actually shockingly hard to do complete automation of something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, people are kind of wondering with language models, like, will we see a trend towards automation with them or not? Will they simply be tools? But as you design these systems and kind of use them for X, Y, or Z, the way you actually have their output manifested in the world has a lot to do with how, how well they're going to perform. Yeah. And do you feel that like it's, it would seem to me that there would be like a possibility for the line between, for instance, like inducing people to do something and like predicting something that 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 line would become blurry almost inherently. Uh, I think that a lot of the time people don't even have a clear idea of what they want or like if it's experimental or something like I think Lambda even comes to mind as perhaps an example of that, like that. You know, they're just like they have ideas like, oh, it's yeah. going to be for Alexa. It's going to make it more intuitive to use like Google workspace or whatever. But also it's going to impersonate planets. It's going to like, you know, it just seems like 
I don't know. And it reminds yeah, maybe. me of what Steve Jobs used to say, or used to people people used to say about him in his glory days was like he knows how to predict what people want before they want it. But now we're trying to invest that in like robots, like doing that basically. Yeah, or I don't know. Anticipating yeah. our desires, but also like you're right. Like it's so it, it it gets so blurry between anticipating your desires or predicting them, and like also projecting them onto you or shaping your desires by because this mystical power of like the data says the algorithm predicts it does it can have a weird power over us like just like those ceos like crafting their language they don't get canceled by like the financial bot algorithm and like their stock gets dumped you know yeah it's like going back to kind of the issue of what what is your end point and how is the model really manifested in the world like we were talking a bit about like crime prediction and whatnot if you assume like everyone's, you know, doing their best to have a reasonable and non-biased like system for trying to estimate threats or something like that, what the machine learning will give you is perhaps a probabilistic estimate of like this individual is saying some spicy stuff, maybe they're like worth taking a look at. But the thing we actually care about is when that individual does a particular thing at a particular place at a particular time. So where do you set the bar? Are you looking to use this as a tool to help highlight people who are potentially like being radicalized or going towards extremism? Or are you trying to literally predict an action? And in both cases, like what happens when you give that information to the authorities? I think there's kind of a sense of like, even if we assume the FBI isn't doing anything weird with kind of inducing this, these sorts of uh, mass shooter events, all their data and all their tracking of these people, all it can really do is highlight someone as a potential risk. And it won't ultimately tell you, oh yeah, this day, this time, this place, the thing will happen. That's true. So then you you have to go back and you ask, well, if we do see these kind of things going through, do we simply end up in a future where we lower the bar for being arrested? Do That's we what I worry about now. For like, or you you made some posts and we estimated that there's like an 80% probability you do a crime in the next year. So we're going to arrest you now. And like, how does that play out? Well, exactly. Because yeah, that's how the I mean, heat well, list was almost like it was almost borderline, like, uh, of course, like, you know, kind of going after people like uh, the people on the south side of Chicago first. But then you could see it be applied to almost everybody. And even in the the debate over kind of like people like to point out, you know, oh, look, another one. He was known to authorities. But what's really the implication that we're saying there when you say he was known to the authorities? Are we saying they should have gone and arrested him because posting like cringy emo core like cloud rap videos of like standing the columbine shooters is not illegal it's troubling it's worrying well, i also but, uh, i feel like I mean? there's a little bit of the uh that picture of like the plane with all the red dots like on the wings like because yeah. you know like where they're like these are the parts of the planes that like when the planes come back they are have always been shot in these places so these are the parts we need to armor but like that's because the planes that got shot in like you know the cockpit or like the engine didn't come back like i feel like if you know any oh, if someone commits a mass shooting they're like they were known to authorities because everyone is fucking known to the authorities <laughs> like you know or mo- like m- a lot of people 
You mm-hmm. know, like there's got to be uh, quite a few people that fit the criteria of like they've had the cops yeah, call to their I'm house, sure, they threatened know, to kill I won't themselves. Speak for Pale Rider, but I'm sure if either one of us committed a mass shooting, which we would not do, and we do no. not like promote doing in any way, but if we did, like they would be like they were known to authorities, like for sure. I mean, that's oh, by now, you know, yeah, by definition, yeah. But I mean, in terms of like the you know, leaving aside like the whole like kind of like MK, like sort of like angle of like strategy of tension, like just you know, encouraging random mass shooting shootings like when for like in the context of counterterrorism programs and things like that there are like definitely clear examples of like this sort of blurring or the fading into of like the like oh let's like kind of monitor these people and like investigate their connections to extremism and then like kind of slowly pushing them towards a crime that ultimately like there's maybe some apparent substance to it but when you look beneath the surface like it's basically like things that the fbi like push them towards like heavily you know or like and do like encourage them and egg them on to do aggressively like maybe there was something there to begin with but like you know the actual crime like yeah basically it is they are not you know necessarily arresting them for what they were doing before they started monitoring them but they started monitoring them because of those things and then they helped egg them on to the point where they were arrestable for another Mm -hmm. reason that is more or less like they're of their own creation. Yeah, so like many that such type cases of, thing, of that. Um, yeah, definitely happens. But but like, even to throw sure. out an example, because I'm I'm usually not the broad structural forces guy, but I just want to because I think this is kind of interesting that because other people have made this point in more limited senses that the machine you could almost look at it as like I, I do feel like there is a distributed decentralized aspect that is just baked into like the modern internet that leverages aspects of like what we would call MK Ultra that have the potential to suck people into rabbit holes almost in a way like like allow them to like dissociate and like self-hypnotize and then reinforce whatever they're believing in to like a very extreme degree and in a way if you're talking about like cui bono or like what's the benefit putting aside the strategy of tension gladio kind of argument um a little bit you could just say that this system is almost like designed to perpetuate itself. And by that, I mean like the surveillance national security apparatus, like both the technical and like the bureaucratic apparatus is almost like designed structurally to like the internet takes all these atomized individuals and they know that just statistically with all this toxic shit floating around the internet that you know certain people and these are people that often get flagged uh, might snap one day and you know go out and do a spectacular mass shooting like think about how different the political landscape would be over the last 20 years if we didn't have these like lone wolf terror attacks every single year how passionate would the gun control debate be right now Probably not that passionate on either side. You know, calls for, you know, basically uh, surveilling people or, you know, this kind of pre-crime shit, uh, that wouldn't be as hot. You know, like the the people, there wouldn't be a stimulus basically uh, triggering people. So in a way, it's kind of like strategy of tension, but it's more just like the classic there's a problem out there. These crazy young men just keep going and killing people. So we got to do something about it. Fuck your thoughts and prayers. We got to do something. And then all the solutions just deeper entrench <laughs> and justify the budgets and the expansion of this system because we just keep not solving the problem of stopping mass shooters. But I feel like the way that system is set up now, they could turn it up to 11. They could double the amount of 
surveillance on all of us. And it still wouldn't stop it because it doesn't seem to be structurally. I mean, the charitable thing is like it's not structurally effective, but I'd say it's almost like they don't give a shit if it like stops mass shooters because if it stopped all the mass shooters, they wouldn't be able to fleece all the money off like the government <laughs> and like police yeah. agencies and the Pentagon and all this shit. And, and Wall Street wouldn't get the same returns that they get from like Palantir or these other companies. And and then you wouldn't be able to surveil people more, which just kind of has a benefit for the entire ruling class. Like they want us more monitored, more control. It's just like I think it's like yeah. a safe bet that like they would want that. Like instead I definitely, of less. I definitely agree with what you said in terms of like the perpetuation of it. In fact, I was thinking about that like relative to the, I guess maybe in a way like less uh, apparently pernicious like phenomenon of like the way that these people might imagine that these like uh, language models are. Uh, sentient in some way because i think that the way that our society has evolved like especially like even in like very even very recently and the sort of uh, personality types maybe or the tendencies that are rewarded in the like silicon valley and things like that you know no if i would include myself as someone who's like very uh introverted and has like certain uh eccentricities and like uh you know personality uh qualities that like maybe predominate in some ways in some of these uh industries but like those are the types of people who if you want to like uh, classify different types of intelligence, like their sort of interpersonal intelligence wouldn't be like the most highest, the, the most highly rated one. And they would maybe be more prone to confuse humanity with like a very convincing or sophisticated copy. There's a feedback loop there as well, where that is like rewarded by the proliferation of the internet and how we interact through text so much. And also like the types of people who like, are designing these types of technologies. The biases of the builders. Yeah. yeah that's been commented on a lot. I, I don't know if it was in the Stochastic Parrot, uh, Stochastic Parrot's paper, but uh, Tim Gebber has also touched on that one and so have many others, which is that all the people building these systems kind of come from a certain pedigree. Mm -hmm. And that affects um, what systems they choose to build and how they go about evaluating it. And one of the ways you see this is like, all the early facial recognition systems, and this is still the case, but it was really, really bad in the first couple of rounds, where if you were a dark-skinned person, it just straight up didn't work for you at all. So, mm. and these were like official products being produced by big companies, by like Microsoft had a big one and others. And it's like, so how do you have a huge company with a huge budget um, producing this product that simply does not work in any meaningful sense for, for a dark-skinned person? And the answer is like, all, all the guys doing it were probably either white or Asian and it worked for them. And that was their level of test. Mm -hmm. And there's this, this thought of that, like, you need to have a diversity of voices in the room of people creating these things to scope both what problems you go after and how you choose to evaluate that. And in particular, I think Silicon Valley suffers from the problem of like, the thing, the problems they try to solve are the problems faced by Silicon Valley guys living in San Francisco. That's why we have like a billion different food delivery iterations. Yeah. You know, so the, the, the scope of what problems are worth working on is very much confined by the, the lived realities of the people making it. Yeah. They're, yeah. I mean, everything from like, yeah, their class consciousness, their personal interests, like their value systems. I mean, just to think about like how much of an outsized influence 
like one institution like Stanford University has on the entire internet, like up to this day. Like I'm, it's obviously not everybody, but you know, like if you looked at like the top tech companies and the startups and shit, you're going to find like a huge amount of Stanford people. And like, you know, it's easy for us to brush it off. Like, oh, it's just a lead institution where they do computer stuff. Like what, what's the big deal? But then, you know, as we've done on this podcast, like if you go back and look at like the evolution of Stanford itself as an institution, it was like run by eugenicists and like founded by like a corrupt robber baron railroad guy like in the late 1800s sort of launder his thefts you know into like a, a public good and then you know they've like everything that developed out of sri and like the cold war complex and shit there are particular ideas that are dominant in these institutions there are mindsets their attitudes there are kind of like a class social class loyalties that one buys into often by going to these universities and so like that alone as like a huge influence though you know the argument that oh yeah this is going to be uh these products are going to be universal for everybody and they're totally not going to be biased just seems kind of laughable yeah like that's kind of what people but that's like so people reacted to like what tim nick gebrus said like almost in the opposite way where they acted like it was laughable as you said like there's a sort of mystique and like a, a weird authority that's like uh you know afforded to these like algorithms because they're totally unbiased they're robots they don't have these like the algorithms can't be racist like that's ridiculous <laughs> like when it, like you know if you're programming in that's like those biases and of course like it can just reproduce them like no like it's not racist by the standard of like you know, again these are people who don't like believe in the idea of like a systemic racism or anything like that so i guess you know that's part of the problem but like of course that doesn't have intentionality period so it doesn't like wish ill to people like that but it's just reproducing the biases of the people who designed it you know it's, it's like it's an interesting almost know, like metaphor parallel to like how racism actually operates in a sense of like it's less about like a guy having like negative beliefs about like a group of people and it is about like a structure that almost reinforces itself at least today yes. i feel like to a large degree like people almost being unconscious of it or being resistant to the idea that like they're participating in something racist like it's been sublimated so deeply and baked into the whole system that now it's treated as a natural outcome that's why i always felt yeah, like the, people, the on top of like the 80s of like basically like the civil rights things were won in the 60s but then i don't know all this cocaine just gets flooded into the like you know black urban neighborhoods and stuff in the 80s and then this new on top arises that like there's just a lot of crime in the inner city and that's just how it is. And then now I feel like today, like people just think, oh, it's like always that way. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Like there are real material factors that like led to that. But that's what the AI is reading off of. They're reading the war on drugs 80s. Like does the AI factor in that like George H.W. Bush is bringing in all the cocaine for the CIA? No. You know, like, it's, it's, you know what I'm saying? So it's like it's just reading like the stats and being like, this is natural. Like over policing of black neighborhoods is just the weather. Like that's yeah. just what it is. It's so yeah. it's so well, it's just so fucked up that people are be like, well, that's what the robot says, and it knows better than us mere humans. Like it's when biased. it's like yeah. it's crazy that people think that way. Like, you know. The the phrase they use is the algorithmic laundering of bias, where you take some sort of bias process, you create a computer system that reproduces it, and then you say, you know, well, I didn't do that, the computer did. And especially with the machine learning, because it's a mathematical process to construct a mathematical model, there's this kind of veneer of objectivity. And I guess in the sense, um, it is objective in that it computes a very particular function, and it computes the same function every time. But there's a, a wider social context that that exists in, and we can see kind of the bias there. 
But even then, there's like who decides what is bias and and what things we care about for bias are also other problems there. Yeah, you know what that that reminded me of a few a couple of years ago, or maybe it was in yeah it was in 2020. There was a, a there, I don't know if you remember this pale rider, but in our state there was Proposition 25, which was going to sounds like very progressive issue. They're going to eliminate cash bail. Wow, like you know the whole DSA, everybody is just this is amazing. But I remember reading through that little guide they send you. And uh, maybe a few articles, and it explained like, well, it's not just like abolishing cash bail; it's replacing it with something called a risk assessments referendum. Now, what is this risk assessments referendum? I guess I think some of the things I read were like, oh, they're going to contract out to Silicon Valley to create like an AI thing that like runs your stats <laughs> and decides whether or not you should be released or not. So it turns it into a binary where you just either get out of jail or you don't. And there were like a few people what? to their respect, like <laughs> there were a few people, uh, like progressive types that were like, whoa, wait, hold up. Like this sounds super woke, like Black Lives Matter, like we're going to reform, abolish the carceral state. But like you're basically pawning off this admittedly flawed practice to like an AI thing that a bunch of, you know, people in Silicon Valley created. And just like we talked about, like it's absolutely going to reinforce the biases of like the historical period preceding it and probably be like, oh, you're from East Oakland. Oh, your cousin was like arrested for, you know, something once like oh, high probability, no bail. And then it would be like, no, we're not racist. Like, you know, it's, it's us. The robot did it. So that got voted down maybe for not the right reasons. But like, I think people were maybe a little sussed out by it. But, yeah, there's a, but there's they're a trying long, to do it. There's a long history of people trying to make bail algorithms. They keep coming back to that one. <laughs> Why? Why do they um, love I, it so much? I don't know. I think it's just kind of the easy. It's an easy sell, I would say. Like all your data is there because everyone who's gone through the system, you know, if they posted bail or not, and you can kind of figure out what they said it at, and you assume that's correct. Um, you can do the the fairness angle to it. Um, also, any kind of police contracting, you usually get paid pretty well for that. Same as DOD, that sort of thing. I don't know if it was this particular algorithm, but I was reading about a bail algorithm and they basically had 19 questions that they used and they put it through a machine learning model and had it predict, you know, should you get bail? And if so, for how much? And I don't remember the full list, but one of them was something like, um, do you have a good relationship with your father or something like that? And you can imagine um, if you just took those 19 questions and you gave it to, you know, a court and said, based on these 19 questions, we think bail should be at this. They would say you're being ridiculous. Like, what do these questions have with the, the facts of the crime here? But when you kind of wrap that in an automated system that's kind of a black box, you know, people tend to just kind of go with it. And you say, oh, well, we, we have all this intelligent feature extraction and we learn these latent correlations between features based on a large data set that we have, blah, blah, blah. It, it feels like it's more real than it is. Yeah. I'm looking now. They actually did roll it out in parts of New Jersey. Yeah. And it failed <laughs> as you expected. The, uh, the other one that, that's kind of really mystified in the industry is the gap, or at least in, in how it sells itself, is the gap between the machine learning algorithm itself and the overall system. Oftentimes, the machine learning algorithm is actually a very small part and it's doing a very um, simple thing. And then it exists in a wider system that actually controls, you know, how the outputs that are used. Like facial recognition is a good example. Um, what the machine learning literally does in facial recognition is it takes in two faces and tells you if they're the same person or not. And that's the entirety of the machine learning algorithm. 
So when you build a facial recognition product, what you do is you attach to that a database of existing faces through like mugshots or something like that. And when you want to scan a, a photo you have against the database, the model just does all those different comparisons against whoever you have on file. So the things of like, who is in that database? What happens if someone, if you have a, a suspect who's not in that database? What's the threshold of similarity for, for choosing a match? All those sorts of things. Those are all decided outside of the algorithm by someone who's either making it or operating it. Mm -hmm. the, the machine learning part is fairly constrained. It's just, are these two faces the similar or different? But the overall um, product, which you know is like, I can put in a face to the system and it tells me who to arrest, that requires a lot of like non-machine learning stuff that is intentionally designed by someone. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, you know, neutral, clean, whatever. Yeah. Biases can creep in. Yeah.